There we go. All right, welcome, dear sir, Adley Nichols to Magic Without Fears. We're uh, gonna have a good time. It's it's another one of these OTO GD meetings because um, you're still in the OTO, I believe. Yeah, you're not one of the you're not one of, in exile like some people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Seattle area. <laughs> um, and and we're also priests. You're a priest of the Ecclesia Gnostic. Oh, damn. Ecclesia yeah, Gnostic Catholica. And uh, yeah, I got to spend some time living in a house in an oasis in Belfast, surrounded by some of those fellows. And that, I, I that, really, on... that might be, that might have a lot to do with why I'm, I have a different disposition towards the OTO and the AA than a lot of, of GD people. Uh, I get it, man. I, I overheard a little bit of it in the Rufus Opus podcast you did. Uh, sounds. Oh, sounds that was all made up. Yeah, no, I, I didn't say anything that was true with Rufus. It was all just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> just having a piss. Uh, I'm joking now, of course, but um, <laughs> it is well, a thanks for podcast. podcast. And uh, I, I dig the kind of um, easy to go and vibe you got on your episode. So looking forward to the chat. Yeah, thanks. Um, cheers. What was the what was the thing we were going to talk about before? Oh yeah, um, before, right before we mentioned let's hit record. The um, the issue of practice and 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 changing the molds of magic, um, which is something we're both very interested in, and that to me is very uh, significant. Then that we both come out of respectively OTO and GD traditions because um that is you could say a very specific model of magic um yeah and yeah. <laughs> you could say that the practice of magic has evolved in a way but evolved by going backwards yeah there's i mean there's definitely a, a renaissance of sorts happening now in the magic world uh, particularly in the salmonic magic world and I, I think the craze of the the fraternal bodies in, in a in a way of, has kind of um, mellowed out a bit. It's not what it used to be for sure. Um, and that's nothing against many of the orders. And it's certainly not to say they're they're no good. They certainly are, uh, and can be. But um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's different now for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, well, we'll come back to, to uh, maybe a bit more about the order of life. But the main thing we're here to talk about is grimoire magic. And uh, specifically on December 1st, Joseph Peterson, who uh, some listeners might have heard of, uh, is releasing the Elucidation of Necromancy, um, yes. which is a grimoire you wrote in a past life, correct? <laughs> and, and now he's he, and now he's the one publishing it, and uh, the the legal cases will be huge. <laughs> well, he is certainly uh, qualified to publish it. I I have a feeling, at least with my interest, I I think that this is um, sort of a, a magnum opus that's happening here with with the work that he's really dived into. Um, Tamron and the Eluchidari Omar, um, I, I think. Uh, overlooked quite a bit you know kind of kind of in the shadow of, of the general key of solomon you know it's always overshadowed by key of solomon or overshadowed by Enochian, but it's a really powerful system and 
uh, he's done uh, incredible work getting this thing going. So I'm, I'm terribly excited to read it. I noticed on, on the Facebook group, you, you manage quite well because not all of them are managed well, as we know. Um, Thanks. Though, hey, unicorn god forms are fun sometimes. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I lasted about I lasted about two days in the Goetia group myself before I'm just like I can't. I just I can't can't do it. Oh yeah, no, I avoid that those those groups. But okay, so you're in in the in your Western Magic group, which uh, again, it's it, that and a couple other reasons is the only reason I even have a Facebook account. Um, but you got to go where the party is, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you're also a musician. You get that. <laughs> you got to You got to play to your audience, uh, or or your or it's just practice. Um, yeah. You know, you got to take your stuff to the street and see how it how it works. <clears throat> I noticed that you have done a, a bit of research into the actual manuscripts themselves because I noticed how much you were saying about the system that was, to my knowledge, not yet published. And of course, I'm aware of how manuscripts work and that they're widely available on online now. That's, uh, we're all grateful for that. Um, so you've, you've, you've been in this manuscript for a long time. You're even referenced, you're given credit or thanks in, in the Peterson book coming out, right? So what's the, what's the whole story of how this all happened? And, uh, and, and how the man, do you know how he got the manuscript where how it was discovered because it is essentially a heptameron yeah uh yeah so so the heptameron um you know is published in the fourth book of occult philosophy uh philosophy in 1559 and um its origins were just kind of grossly looked over um i think there was a reference uh that one of the editors uh, said there was a, a 19 or a 1497 edition or something and, but no one could ever find it and and they just kind of thought well maybe this thing was just made up for the fourth book of occult philosophy um, a couple folks knew about a reference by trithemius in 1503 i think it is where he kind of catalogs his work um, and kind of condemns certain books and there was this book called lucidarium necromanciae uh, which uh, the description what was the heptameron. It was, you know, conjuring unknown demons to yourself of the years, seasons, and times uh, and, and binding the spirits in that sort of manner. And, and he condemned the work there. Uh, and it's like anyone who knows the heptameron goes, that's the description of the heptameron, no doubt. But there was no official link to the Eleuchidarium Necromantia until we started looking closer. Um, so the heptameron is an eluchidarium to which we now have four versions of four known manuscripts at this point. Um, and I believe Peterson has translated all of them in his work with his commentary. Yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was reading through, uh, you know, you can preview a few pages on Amazon uh, yeah. um, of the elucidation of necromancy. That's the name you can find it under folks. Um, and, you know, I just, I, you know, I love it. I, you, you see, you see so many jokes about not reading introductions. Um, but, but, every, <laughs> but, you know, like I, like I just bought the Michael Sellis uh, text from Skinner. I bought it for the introduction. I bought it because yeah. it was the only way I could read that introduction. And because, you know, I, I'm familiar with those style of text back and forth, but it was, it was the introduction I wanted. 
and reading yeah. Peterson's comments on the uh, the manuscript traditions of the Eleutherarium and the Heptameron. I mean, I'm I'm certainly planning on on finally diving into the Heptameron because I think I put it aside mainly originally when I heard about it years ago when I also heard that the fourth book of occult philosophy wasn't actually by Agrippa. I heard that in the '90s, and so for some reason I was like, okay, well, I won't even really pay attention to that much anymore. But that yeah. sort of almost it's it it should almost deserves more attention than Agrippa because the Heptameron predates Agrippa and and might be arguably a more important document than it is it's significant in many ways in that um in that it's kind of the last stand of a dead tradition of conjuration uh and and we can we can definitely get to that a little bit but to answer your first question which is kind of where the origin of this all started uh because one day we had that tamaron and then the next day we we had the manuscript of VRL 1115. And then all of a sudden we found one in Ghent and we found one in um, VSG's manuscript. Uh, I don't recall the number of it, but so um, I was doing um, Enochian magic for yeah, the better part of a decade. And um, I had stumbled across during, during the last couple of years of my practice with Enochian, I, I did this sort of deep dive into the original system found in Dee's diaries and his five books of mystery uh, and all this you know trying to trying to weed out what what was the golden dawn's edition the the more modern editions you know versus what was in the, the original books um because that's what i wanted to recreate because you don't they don't tell you in the golden dawn books or in the uh in the in the um other enochian works i, I don't want to name name uh authors here but they don't tell you that it's it's golden dawn based um there's no real clear you know deviation and until aaron's book which i would recommend aaron's an Okian book um it points out several differences and uh and if you go fact checking you're gonna you're gonna find support for for what he's got to say throughout that entire book um are you so, referring to his essential Enochian grimoire or are you talking about the two volume yeah you're talking about no, the Enochian grimoire yes yeah. Um, that's that's an excellent book. Um, you know, I went in there and and regardless of the author, whoever the author is, I always try to dig up the original manuscripts and dig up the original sources and see is this right, you know? Uh, that book is exceptional in its research, I'll tell you that. So it's very helpful. Uh, nonetheless, um, so I was, the last few years, I was diving and recreating. I recreated the table. I showed you a couple of pictures that I had set up yeah. there. And, and uh, I realized that... Um, that I was really drawn to working, uh, other angels were showing up. You know, the Enochian system has its own obvious hierarchy and its own collection of angels in, in its system. But um, the seven planetary archangels were really easy to contact for me. Um, so I actually started just working with them. Uh, the table is geared to talk to any kind of angel. Like it's, it's excellent at just celestial spirit contact. So I started working with just sort of the seven. And um, at the time that I was doing this, you know, I was not terribly grounded in my life, you know, still kind of younger. I, I just bought a house. My job was okay. It wasn't anything to write, write home about, you know, so my needs at the time were income, stability, you know, and, and when you look at what the Enochian system historically has been used for, it's much bigger and grander things than, than a little bit of money or, you know help out with a stable car right yeah <laughs> a, a, a student and colleague just sent me the images of his 
floor sigil and hand sigil for buffets. I was like, planning on sinking any pirate ships, ships or uh, <laughs> aircraft carriers. <laughs> Definitely more of a, uh, a governmental influence, uh, kingdom influence, so to say. But nonetheless, yeah. these, these angels, I would ask for these things. And, um, and the angels would actually bring me spirits. Um, and they would say, okay, well, here's, I'm paraphrasing here, making this sound really quick. Here's a, so-and-so a spirit, one I've never heard of that can assist in this. And so it was almost like they would oversee that spirit and I'd work with that spirit to get things done. After about a year and a half of doing this, because that's basically what I started using the, the Enochian tools for. Um, I think it was a working with Michael. He made it clear in no uncertain terms that if I was to continue doing this method, that I needed to work in, a, in what was called the Heptameron. At the time, I knew the name of the Heptameron, but I, I didn't know the work. I didn't know anything about the work. Um, that's just, you know, he made it clear that this, this setup, this system is not for me to bring you spirits. If you want, if you want angels to bring you spirits, you work the Heptameron. So I actually wow. stopped working the Enochian system. I gave uh, all of my freshly created setup to a, a friend in Minnesota and um, and decided to learn the key of Solomon for some reason because that's just what year was this about <laughs> yeah oh the heptameron I don't know anything about that but I know about the key so let's try that and I've worked the key for a little bit with with mild success um, in the end though and ultimately what I learned from the key was very helpful in understanding the Heptameron when it finally I got around to reading it, uh, where I realized that it's all about celestial spirits bringing terrestrial spirits to use. Um, what, was the first, what was this first version you read? Uh, fourth book, because that was the only thing that, that's, that was yeah. the only thing. That, um, so I started doing this work and working with that Tamara on having amazing results. Um, but I, and, and at the same time of diving into the Heptameron, I started the Facebook group. The Facebook group now is called Western Medieval Magic. Um, but originally it was called the Heptameron. And all, it was just me. And all I was doing was dumping my notes and dumping my research. If I was gonna learn this system, I was gonna learn it well. Um, so I just started collecting all the texts and that's how uh, we do it. And occasionally people would join the group. Um, you know, there were probably 10 people originally, nobody, nobody really of, of note, you know, none of the scholars and folks have joined yet at this point. It's just me sort of doing a thing. Um, and, and I had, I had problems when conjuring because what was happening is my family was waking up. My, my wife would have terrible dreams. My, my kid would be screaming, um, you know, the spirits were clearly not just there in front of me, they were affecting everything. So I went about trying to find a way to constrain spirits to an area in my house, because I don't want, you know, I got a family, I don't want all that stuff happening every time that I'm in the middle of the night doing works or whatever. So yeah, Brian's mentioned problems like that, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I kind of picked his brain a little bit to see what did, what did you do, you know? Um, so I did a couple workings and um, th the end result was ultimately uh, this sigil of Aniel. 
that I'm supposed to post across the rooms. And, and it made no sense to me. Why Aniel? Why, why is Aniel the sigil? You know, so I conjured up the spirits of Venus to, to look for validation and, and for clarification. Uh, and I got this, this answer that, you know, he is a, a force that is respected among all spirits and that no one would willfully cross it which was interesting and I didn't totally buy it. Um, but I was working with Andy Foster lately, talking with him and he was, uh, we're really doing a deep dive into the SSM, Summa Sacra Magic of 1346, I think. Uh, 1340 something, mid, mid 14th century we'll say. And he surprisingly came across a depiction of Aniel standing above three severed heads of Beelzebub, uh, Satan and Lucifer. Um, which was really interesting to, to see that correlation between, oh, here I was given these seals of Aniel, and, uh, and well, it didn't make sense at the time, here's a depiction of Aniel with the severed heads of the three prime infernal spirits, you know, like that's a big deal. Anyway, I digress a bit. So I'm doing this work looking for validation. No, dude, and, that's uh, crazy. Like, that's crazy. I was just picturing it in my head, and I'm like, oh, my God, I wanted to ask you questions, but I wanted you to keep talking. So, um, so I, I, I'm looking for more validation. I'm in a hurry, so I do, conjuring, I do a conjuring on the waning moon, which I've, I know that things happen on the waning moon. SSM is actually validated. There are good days to conjure on waning moon, by the way. Uh, we'll, that's we'll not that. normal, right? Most people conjure on waxing moons, right? Yes. But there, there's lists of favorable days of both the waxing moon and the waning moon. Yeah. But a lot of the medieval stuff didn't make it. And, and we can talk about why, um, particularly with, with the Renaissance and, and the authority figures at the establishment of the Renaissance, like Agrippa. Um, but I was trying to validate, I conjured on the waning moon. Uh, I got excellent response of spirits who basically said, no, that we, this isn't us like it's like reaching out to the night shift right yeah they're they're clearly working they're they just don't do that and how you interact with the night shift like versus a day shift you know it felt like that they're like no no we, we're not do this. this isn't our job you know come back at the right hours because this isn't this isn't our job but they're like but um you need to figure this shit out and it started drop they started dropping all this stuff all this information about, uh, you know, you need to, um, what is it, correct, uh, correct the, the wheel. They're like, you need to correct the wheel um, because by the wheel corrected are the spirits constrained because I'm asking, how do I constrain the spirits to a better, a more effective construct? Like you need to correct the wheel. And my wife, who's a terribly gifted scryer who sees for me, she goes into this whole other world. She is um, drawing all this stuff down and um taking all the notes that she's getting and what what we're getting together and this wheel i'm stumped by this wheel whatever so we call it quits and i start going in uh, and looking over the next week or so in other grimoires and i stumble across gosh which one was it uh one of the sloan keys uh anyway in about the middle of it I, there's this fold out it's one of peterson's um and here is the, the wheel, is it called the wheel of fortune? And what it is, is it's a circle divided into seven with a list of the hierarchies from 
angels to the planets and it's just the correspondence but it's it's the wheel and one of the one of the descriptions when i was trying to ask them what do you mean a wheel a wheel you know they're like you know it as a table and i'm coming right out of sort of working as the key i'm like okay so i'm supposed to build some table like is this what i'm doing now like this isn't what i signed up for you know but then i realized while looking through the wheel that's in the key is literally a table of correspondence and uh and so this led to the whole michael being attributed to to mercury thing um so in all of this, I'm trying to figure this, this is not like an overnight discovery, by the way, this is, this took time. I was also instructed to get a hold of an individual who I didn't really know at the time uh, named Alexander Eth, who runs the Glitch Bottle podcast. Um, so I knew who he was and I knew his podcast, but you know, at the time I'm, I'm like, I don't know why they, they want me to get a hold of him. He had something that I, that was an answer for me. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try to wrap this story up real quick. So he had something that was an answer for me. Um, so I reached out to him uh, and invited him to the Heptameron group. Um, he apparently had an interest with the Heptameron already anyway. Um, so he read through some of the documents and posts and started asking me questions. Um, and I started, we started this big dialogue of things that, you know, were, were questionable at the time. You know, standards of, of Salmonic magic. We, we've shaken a lot of standards with the discovery of the Eleuchidarium. Um, and uh, he says, you know, Mihai, oh gosh, uh, Mihai, I, I don't want to butcher his name. Uh, like Vertiger, I'll butcher it for you. Hey, Mihai, Vertigero. <laughs> Alexander F. nails it when he says it. Yeah, Alexander Eth is great at all of this stuff. Um, yeah. So, so Mihai, um, he's like Mihai mentioned in one of our podcasts that he knew about another Heptameron, and uh, and so he he has Mihai get the the manuscript over to Peterson, and Peterson starts digging in right away. Um, and one of the first things that Peterson brings up to light in the group is, huh, interestingly, Michael is on, on Mercury here and Raphael's to the sun. And, and, you know, if you look back, that's not a surprise to everybody because there's a lot of back and forth on where Michael goes in all of this. But as I alluded to previously, um, the standards or the authorities of magic during the launch or transition to the Renaissance, like Agrippa, um, they set a standard, um, and Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy was wildly successful, uh, and it set a standard. And if you keep going into the Renaissance from the 1500s, to the 1600s to the 1700s, you find standards becoming almost universal. Um, and sure enough, it is incredibly rare to find Raphael attributed to the sun anywhere post, post Agrippa. Agrippa does attribute Raphael to the sun, but the fourth book of occult philosophy, which is where the Heptameron was published, attributes Michael to the sun. Um, and because of the success of the fourth book of occult philosophy, hinging on Agrippa stuff, um, 1559 and on, it's pretty hard to find a reference to, to Michael, to Mercury. 
Um, so it's, it's pretty much right at the point of the publication of the fourth book of occult philosophy that the universal standard of Michael to the sun is established. To tie all back to the story, the correction of the table and whatnot, well, it's not a quote correction because it, it was this way. Um, it's just, you know, I was told to talk to Alex. Alex talked to me, hi, got the manuscript to Peterson. Peterson's making the discovery. And I'm like, hey, hey, look, you know, there, there's yeah. the thing. <laughs> so, but so, from on, you know. so you attribute generally Raphael to the sun or and Michael to Mercury? In my personal work, yeah. Yeah, uh, Michael to the sun, uh, Michael to to Mercury, and Raphael to the sun. Uh, I also work in the manner of VRL one 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 five's manuscript, which has the night preceding the day. So the night of Mercury, for example, is what we would call Tuesday after sundown. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting change that I heard you mention on. I don't know if it was Glitch Bottle or you did the Arabic High Magic podcast as well. And that was an excellent episode. I really enjoyed that. Um, at, right afterward, Face YouTube recommended an uh, uh, interview with Nineveh Shadrach, who, of course, is the guy who let me into Golden and gave me mo my motto for RRC and, and trained the adepts there. And uh, so we have a very different, that, was prob that probably made our Golden Dawn Temple slightly different for its lifespan uh, coming sure. from someone like Nineveh. Um, or Frater Ka, as he was called, and because um, he's a serious magician, right? Like really serious guy, um, and has all this Arabic knowledge, which is quite remarkable mm -hmm. to have all that Arabic knowledge and go through the Golden Dawn for some reason. But he joined also when he was very young, and so he was empathetic to my plight as a teenager. And after some pushing and prodding with the powers that be, he got me in and and took responsibility for my, you know, <laughs> my safety. Yeah. There's, um, a, there's a lot of Arabic stuff in, in the medieval grimoires, too. Uh, yeah. yeah at the, he was translating all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and it went from Spain into um, works like Liber Iratis um, and, and the Heptameron, even. Yeah. Um, I, I think the early, our grade material dealt with the issue by having Raphael as the archangel and Miko as the angel, and then in Hode, vice versa. So just mm -hmm. flipping them, right? They had yep. different sort of positions. I don't know if that has a grimoire oh. tradition or if it was a <laughs> conflation for Golden Dawn uh, workability. Um, I don't see anything like that in, uh, you know, keep in mind, you know, where my focus is, is kind of that medieval, late medieval era and the transition into the Renaissance. Well, I'm well-versed in the Renaissance stuff, my heart and soul and research is focused on kind of that late medieval. And I could say, you know, regarding the, the topic of switching them as an angel of the, of the Sephiroth or an angel of the planet or anything of that nature, it doesn't seem reflected in that era. I here's think a, that might be a more modern thing. Yeah, here's maybe a good question. Do you find that when we think of angels as uh being like the archangel of this power this say Sephirah or and the angel of that or in the choir of angels do you think those distinctions actually mean much to the spirits um so i, I think that we we crave we as humans crave pattern and organization and i do think that 
pattern in organization is seen in sort of the celestial spirit world. Um, so uh, I don't think that those positions are necessarily meaningful to the spirits which hold them. Um, and a lot of those positions rotate among spirits. Um, it, let's just break this out. I, 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 I try to avoid the term angel and avoid the term demon because Amen. When we get into the world of, of Protestants and beyond into the modern, you know, eras, they take on totally different meanings. Um, you know, like I said, my heart's in the medieval era and a spirit was a spirit. Uh, and and if, if you didn't know the context of, uh, of what the working was about or what the manuscript was about, it would be difficult to tell the difference between an angel and a spirit um, in those works. They were, they were all called spirits. Um, so I call angels, what we generally think of as angels, celestial spirits, and what we think of demons or other chthonic entities as terrestrial spirits. So if you hear me saying terrestrial spirits and celestial spirits, just know that's kind of where I'm at. The distinction, that's why I try to avoid the context. But, um, you know, we'll see that uh, an angel of the day, um, say Gabriel, for example, uh, he'll rule the day of Monday. And there'll be three ministers who are underneath him. And some of those are going to be archangels, which rule other days. And you will see other archangels as ministers to other archangels on different days. Um, so it seems like there's, there's cycles. And we can also see kind of reflected uh, that the years, you know, depending on which philosopher slash magician slash manuscript you're looking at, you know, there's some angels will rule a period of 60 years or 70 years or 300 years or, you know, and then they'll cycle to another archangel. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the deacons are all ruled by, at least in the medieval era, were ruled by um, the angels of the planets, which ruled the, the deacon, like the first deacon of Aries would have been ruled by uh, Samuel. So, I, I mean, there's cycles and, and they hold different titles. And I don't think the titles mean anything to them. Um, but they mean something to us. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> well, you know, it, it always, uh, things like that always remind me of the good old fashioned, what you make true on earth, I'll keep true in heaven. And then the fact that most of the Emerald Tablets actually don't start off saying, quotas superiors they start off saying quotas inferiors as secret quotas superiors and then uh, as above so below so as below so above and not many people notice that in fact most books that publish the latin english side by side it says quotas inferiors and then the english says what that which is above is like that which is below and it's like even though it's staring people in the face yeah. they don't see it i was going to publish a whole thing on it until uh the oldest Arabic version came out and showed that it starts off with as above. And then it's like, yeah. okay, that probably was the original way based on what we know. And so there's no point in me giving a sort of a, a theological ponderance to uh, what, what the might mean if the primary interpretation is as below, so above rather than vice versa. So, because yeah. the Arabic probably does represent the oldest version, right? I mean, it might not, I, but it probably I, does. You know, before before the Arabic, there was the Greeks, and you know how far this stuff goes. Oh yeah, 
who knows it, it you, you lose track you know in the aerobic a lot of the times you're gonna lose track in the arabic stuff and you just kind of are like well maybe it was greek originally who knows but to to address your question i do think the hierarchy matters in conjuration do you think it has something to do with the way that our minds or our spirit or that which has power in us interfaces with the external spiritual world so i know it's we're talking philosophy here but why not we're, we're um, both priests here's what here's what i find um this is coming from first the perspective of someone who um really tries to recreate the historical context of the work that that what i do is in in this case the medieval stuff um at the time there was a form of conjuration. We see we see a light version of it, or or maybe it was condensed. I, I don't know. We see a little bit of it, like in the PGM, um, where there's a, a consecration of tools for Helios, for example, where you call the name of the sun in every hour, and the name is different in every hour, and and by those names you consecrate this tool. Um, that's the kind of method that we see in the medieval era. Um, where we have, uh, you have uh, a name of, a, of an hour, a name of a day, uh, the angel of the day, the servants or ministers of the angel of the day, uh, the, the major or the ruler of, of the day uh, or an overseer. Um, we get down to the name of the season, the, <laughs> the name of the planets, uh, the name of the planets and the signs, the, the name of the earth and the seasons, the name of the seasons, the name of the earth and the seasons, waters, elements in the season, like it goes all the way down. And every single moment in, in time has a different hierarchy, a, a big list of these hierarchies. Um, and it's by those names that the spirits are constrained. It's not by the day. You don't constrain spirits by the day back then. It was by the moment. If you wanted to speak with or conjure um, a spirit who was attributed to Mars, you didn't have to wait for the day and hour of Mars. You could do it whenever the hell you wanted to. You just needed to call the right hierarchy of that time. Um, and and the, you can see evidence in Liber Gratis, for example, and SSTEM, where they explain that you can't conjure spirits that you don't know anything about. If it's a chaotic spirit, you're not going to have any luck conjuring it. So we're going to just call off seven archangels and stir the spirit up by their authority, you know? And as we move into the standardization of the Renaissance, we see a, a uniform, you know, day, hour. If it's a lunar spirit you want, you call Gabriel on a Monday, on the hour of Monday. But it wasn't, it wasn't like that originally. And the Heptameron, coming back to the Heptameron, is kind of the last stand, the last publication in 1559 where this system was partly intact, but it it didn't survive after that. Um, wow. That system, conjuration didn't happen like that anymore. But that system of calling by the moment was everywhere. Uh, 14th wow. century, 13th century, 12th, 15th century. But after 1559, so there was almost like a, 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 su a sudden and su yet subtle shift that was then instantly forgotten. I, I think the like standard this... um, and kind of and popularity, keep in mind, like the Key of Solomon, though that thing existed, 
you know, historical Obana referenced it in 1301, I think. Um, so, I mean, the thing existed in like the 1200s, if not earlier, uh, and it used the day and hour. And um, Liber Gratis, or what we see in SSM, which is 1300s, uh, it also can reference day and hour, but it's for different things. If you're making a tool, for example, you're paying attention to the day and hour that you're making the tool. Um, if you're conjuring a spirit, you don't care about the day and hour. You want the celestial hierarchy to be correct. If you're consecrating or you're making a pentacle, you don't care about the, the day and hour at all. You care about calling the right spirits at the right time when you're forging that pentacle. Um, things like that. In the construction of the pentacle. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it would be about calling the right spirits while yeah, you're making you, it. You recite the names of the spirits of the time that you're creating that pentacle while you're making the pentacle. You're physically mm -hmm. paint, painting it. It's a little you know, it's a little different when we get into, uh, I mean, even in the Renaissance, the the surviving manuscripts that we see of like the Key of Solomon, you know, it where we start seeing planetary pentacles, you know, the first time we see planetary pentacles is like the late 1700s. Um, they didn't exist before that. Um, but there's, there's instructions to make the Kandari, which existed in the early keys, but went missing. They're the original nine pentacles, by the way, that went missing uh, somewhere between, I don't know, the unknown 1300 manuscripts and 15, 1600. Um, so, so they're largely gone, but the reference to how to create them, which was at that time in the key, you make them all on a day and hour Mercury, um, that existed. And so people, or magicians of the time started taking these planetary ones, these 42 or 49, whatever pentacles there are, and using the instructions for the Kandari to make them. You made them all on the day and hour of Mercury. And then we get into kind of the early modern period, maybe a little bit before the early modern period. And astrology became important. Uh, uh, elections, astrological elections became important. And, um, and so, yeah, it's just not that any method is wrong. You know, uh, they're just, they're different. You can't take something from the medieval period or the Renaissance and hold them as equal. Uh, they're, they're different methods. Even if they're the same, even if one is a key from the 1300s or 1400s or 1500s from a key from the 1700s or 1800s, they're different beasts. Um, and it's understanding the context is important, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I find it very interesting. Um the the idea that so you don't have to on a wednesday access mercury at the first and eighth planetary hour you can access mercury any at time of the day but use the angels and hierarchy associated with that hour yep, yep. you look at the heptameron um you you can see it there you know it, it the example it gives is the day and hour of the sun but those spirits, um, you can call anytime at any place. You just make your circle. You can see this, the uh, Heptameron or the Eleuchidarian, both of them. Uh, Heptameron is an Eleuchidarian. So the Eleuchidarian uh, is 80, maybe 75% a compressed version of Liber Gratis. And if you look at Liber Gratis, you have the same call down method, um, the same target spirits. Like it, it's all really the same, the way that it's called down is, is really the same. But in Libri Gratis, you call 
all seven of the spirits at once. Um, and it doesn't matter what day you call them on. Um, you, you change the order of which you call the spirits, but you call them all at the same time. So you're calling the seven kings and all of their ministers uh, by, you know, 40 wins and uh, all of these, you know, you're calling 100 plus spirits when you're doing the Liberatus working all right there. Um, and you can see that that survives into the Heptameron, but, but because of the standards of the Renaissance era, it was interpreted as day and hour. The examples given are all day and hour. But we can see when we look at the sources of the, the Luchidarium and Heptameron that it's any time. Hmm. Does that mean I don't have to, like the last few weeks I've been up at, at, before sunrise carving my hazel wand, that's, uh, as you know, from the, the, the group. Yeah. And does that mean I could keep carving it through the day if I wanted to, or I shouldn't because that's a different grimoire? I, the, the organization in me, <laughs> the, the part of me that, that wants to keep things in, in their boxes says, stick to the grimoire you're working in, you know? Um, but which is, is the hazel wand, it, would you, wouldn't you say it's a little bit extraterritorial or is it, is it really restricted? No, it, as the hazel's in the key, it's in Verum, it's in, uh, it's in Liberatis, uh, it's in SSM. I mean, the hazel wand is all over the place. It's but different, I, it's made differently. But do I than, need a different hazel wand for each grimoire? No, I don't no. think you do. Just like you don't need a different sword in my opinion. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think, I don't think when it gets down to that, here's, here's the thing, you know, I, I had some hesitancy because I was saying, you know, the part of me that craves for keeping things in their boxes, yeah, I, I'm, I'm working medieval magic. And what I love about medieval, medieval magic is there are no boxes. Um, the instructions that we see in the Heptameron, the instructions that we see in, in the Key of Solomon, they're all do this, read this, save this. But if we get to the medieval period, standards were not universal at the time. There's so many variations and so many contradictions to contemporary pieces in the medieval era. Um, you take your standards and throw them out the window. Um, the instructions that we see in a lot of the medieval manuscripts aren't say this, do this. They're, if the spirit you want, if you want to conjure multiple spirits, you need to take this into account. You need to move in a clockwise motion if you're Latin or Arabic or Hebrew, a counterclockwise motion. If there's supreme spirits and there's no authority over them, you don't need to raise them. You need to call them. If, if you're only working with one spirit, you don't need to go around the circle. You just go to the direction and call them. Uh, like it's not say this, do this. It's here are the important elements that you need to include. Uh, and that's, I love that there's a freedom there, you know, and, and you become, um, you become a magician in the sense that you have to figure it out, you know? And so you don't want to, I would, I would absolutely stand against someone contradicting the core elements. You want to fulfill those elements, but you're going to be doing them in your way, you know? This is very much in line, it seems, with your own journey uh, from yeah. Lucian and beyond. Um, there's, uh, and of course, uh, there's so much documented about how, I mean, one shift, one shift in, in my lifetime I noticed was the shift from looking at the grimoires as 
challengingly challenging to decipher uh, uh, suggestions for techniques um, because mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't really the research done. I mean, you know, most right. people just yeah. had Mather's uh, Key of Solomon and uh, Crowley's Goetia, uh, mm -hmm. also written by Mathers. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and those were used like as Golden Dawn curriculum for five, <laughs> six and six, five. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't realize. You could sort of see that Golden Dawn is just one really exaggeratedly long preparation to start evocation. Like seven to 10 years, bunch of ceremonies, all this stuff, all this visualizing and vibrating so that you can start. And, and you know, who, who, who's, who denies the value of preparation? Not you, right? Yeah. No, no. So, and uh, those, so those, those texts were not understood the way that they are now. And yeah, yeah. where was I going with that? I'm not sure, but but I can I have another good place to go with it because there's so many things uh, that, that are worthy of being discussed with you. Um, purism. Uh, well, this that's that was the point. Purism versus developing yeah. your own system like Sophie Page uh, in her wonderful uh, book yeah. and thesis, Magic in the Cloisters. Um, mm -hmm. I believe she was actually at my talk at Canterbury a couple of years ago, but though I might be son, it might be someone else. Um, you know, when you're on the road, you meet a lot of people. Um, and it, you feel bad actually, because you're like, you know you're not gonna remember everyone as you're saying you'll remember them. And you're like, that sucks. It's just it sucks. Um, because they all usually I, are all fucking fabulous people. I can remember 700 years of historical magic or I can remember your name. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> So yeah, so Sophie Page uh, fabulously points out that the grimoires were not uh, uh, the be all and end all for the magicians who use them. They were the starting off point to make initial contact with the spirits. And after that, it was very much a journey of unverified personal gnosis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's something that, yeah. that still hasn't seeped out fully into the popular understanding in the culture, I believe. Well, I think a lot of people too, like to take things and run with them and um and, and there's there's a line between getting the foundation and just going ape shit or uh or actually getting the foundation and 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 fulfilling the foundation because the grimoires they don't they don't address every single thing they're not going to address every spirit you contact or how those spirits work or what you should do or how to improve your evocation like they're not going to be addressing that stuff but i there's a difference between um, just sort of winging it based off of a foundation and, uh, and actually fulfilling that, that foundation. You know, the, the foundation sets you up for, for a path. And while the path isn't marked, um, there's, there are things that are specified there and it's a form of validation uh, to that, that the things that you're learning and the things that you are evolving with don't contradict your source you know where you're coming from they don't contradict it um, they they elaborate upon it they build upon it and it becomes your unique thing but um it I, I think it's a very powerful form of validation to see are you given stuff that's contradicting 800 years of magic and if you are is are you sure that this is where you need to go or want to go and maybe it is you know it's not not for me to say that you can't be a pioneer you know by all means go go do it but um it is 
a useful tool of validation. You know, that's why I was so happy to see like the the correspondence, the publication that that Peterson made about Mercury being attributed to Michael, because that was a that was you know one of the things that that was presented up, and I'm like, okay, well, there's a validation, there's a historical validation in this, you know. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's very interesting. Purism isn't really ever purism anyway, is it really? What do you mean? I'm, Hmm. Well, maybe it could be, but like, it seems to me that that the idea of purism, well, is a good idea, which I would, I think is better called traditionalism, which is uh, appealing to sources, reliance on sources, um, valuing sources rather than, you know, having one mystical experience or one, one communication, and then uh, breaking with everything and and rewriting, you know, reinventing the wheel. Um, Uh Right. I, I think Skinner's point is fabulous that look, if, if, if magic was all just uh, fantasy in our head and, and make believe in visualization and active imagination, then these techniques would have changed more over the centuries um, yeah, sure. with each new creative engineer of their own subconscious mm-hmm. fantasies. And, but it isn't. Why is that? And, and it just it's the same reason why people like you and me are still doing this decades later and why every, you know, most magicians who get get good or get serious or have real results young are still doing it later. Because once you see what is possible, what else in life can be even slightly as cool? Yeah. And, and as a, you know, elaboration on that, the, the the word or the term or even the name calling of like a purist right there, there is an attack on on people who are purists just as there's an attack on people who aren't right it's not like it's not like we're in a, a war and there's one right side and and one wrong side it's not like that but you know usually when someone's called a purist they're that term is thrown around to say that they're closed-minded they're against evolution they're they're against, um, you know, going beyond what the grimoire says, which, as you addressed earlier, isn't the case. You know, these manuscripts and this practice was was a foundation, you know, a way. Here's the method to practice. Now go do your thing, you know. Um, but, yeah, there, I, I think there's a lot of closed-mindedness towards purism and a lot of closed-mindedness on, on behalf of, of some purists towards, you know, a, a more... Uh, I guess, chaotic or modern approach too that breaks too many rules for a purist to go down that route. But it's understanding where they're coming from. But in the end, you know, I've got no vendetta against anybody. Um, I, I'm called a purist a lot, but I, I don't consider myself a purist. I, I just, I have a foundation. I try to kind of understand things in historical context. Yeah, I fit into that purist bucket there. But, um, you know, it, it's not about it's not about the found. It's not about every single thing that's in the text. It's about it's about your practice that that develops from that foundation. Um, I'm just more rigid in the sense that I don't want to contradict that foundation. Yeah. So purism's never really meant, even by those who call themselves purists, as what some people might think it is. Otherwise, right. every Enochian purist would have a solid gold ring. Mm-hmm. And it'd be two cubits by two cubits, no exceptions, <laughs> blah, 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 right? 
but, th- right. but there's, you know, the first thing you see on the, on even the purest Enochian form, which I enjoy, it's a lot of fun. Then again, I have a very strong, I'm a Saturn ruled Aquarius. So I love seeing that restrictive <laughs> hammer come down. Like when I yeah. posted on your forum, uh, your thing, uh, and, and Mihai just laid into me, sort of. Yeah, Mihai um, will do yeah. Oh, I, 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 I loved it. I loved it. I was like, oh, I, I'm aware that I'm asking a, a secondary question here okay. off. Not, it wasn't off, though, because I didn't know if there was a reference to the use of hazel as, a, say, an incense or a secondary tool in any grimoire. And there might be, right? There's a lot of strange stuff in the grimoires and the PGM, right? A lot of ingredients used in various various ways. And God knows I haven't read them all yet. And not many have so so it was really great and he and i had a great chat after that i i had a little background in book finding myself as a as a oh, yeah. fellow so uh so i was like let's talk book binding yeah. <laughs> he, was yeah, like, oh. he was like oh you're a regular dude i'm like yeah i'm not some freak trying to make you know <laughs> magical fairy incense out of hazel shavings i've infused with the power of mercury i mean i am doing that but i'm not a freak doing right it. That's, yeah. that's just a normal thing Mihai is fantastic. He's he's a he bit is. abrasive groups. Um, you know, there's that, but he is an amazing person. His research he does is awesome. Um, and his little curses that he puts on the end of his blog. I don't know if you've ever read any of those. He'll 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 make a publication of this and he'll say, but uh, you don't have the right to take these images and make silly strings or, or silly rings on Etsy, or else I'll summon the demons to castrate your balls and blah blah blah. Like it's hilarious um oh my god yeah no i love that all of his publications <laughs> i i appreciate his uh you know european eastern european romanian sense sensitivities and, and humor i i i'm a i'm a european at heart in some ways so i i appreciate that absolutely we need more of it honestly um to counterweight some of the uh uh north american new thought that is yeah. so pervasive but yeah, so if purism, purism is not really purism, it's a, it's a reliance on the sources. And here's when I knew it was, here's when I knew we would get along. It's when I saw your comment uh, on that, on your Facebook group and you used the phrase baseline. And I was like, yes, yes, that's, yes. and that's a lot of what we've been talking about tonight so far is, is the importance of establishing those sort of baselines. Yeah, absolutely important. Yeah. What, what, um, and Mihai is the reason also the Lucidarium is, of Necromancy is coming out, right? Yeah, Essentially. There never would have been the first, the first manuscript of VRL 1115. And I doubt they would have dug in and found VSG or, um, or even brought up that Ghent has a good chunk of one in it. Wow. So, all, all because of Mihai. Yeah. When you think of it like that, it's like, we all owe him a huge debt because I'm sure it's going to, it's probably one of the most awaited publications in a long time. I yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think lots of folks are excited about it. And uh, it, it's funny because when I was talking to Alexander F, um, Alexander was recalling on his podcast with the interview with Mihai uh, that Mihai was just like, I don't know why you'd want it. It's just another heptameron. <laughs> <laughs> he does practice though, doesn't he? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not at liberty to, to discuss that. That's, that's all right. That's a, that's a way better answer than you know. guy search is amazing. Um, and, and for those listening, if you've not checked out his blog, go check out his blog or support him on Patreon. Yeah. You it, want to tell people what it is? What's that? Uh, yeah. What's it, what's it called? Mihai's um, blog. 
let's find out. I can never remember the name because yeah. I've got everything marked. I've only read one <laughs> one article on it, and uh, uh, I enjoyed it very much. Oh gosh, my Google isn't doing it right now. Um, Should I'll I do a it. fake commercial break? Sometimes I do fake commercial breaks and make up a commercial. <laughs> Uh, I think I got it here. Um, oh, no, this isn't it. That's Glitch Bottle thing. This podcast is brought to you by Glitch Bottle. Use Glitch Bottle today for all your needs. <laughs> you should totally have some sort of prod product that is like a little Glitch Bottle potion or something and full of like yeah. stripper sprinkles, sparkles. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can't find it right now. Maybe we should uh, post the link to yeah. it. Yeah, I can when, do that. When we're done. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think? Um, being being a Gnostic priest, being an OTO adept, I believe um, at this point, because uh, you're a Gnostic priest, and I think that's how it works. Even though I am not the expert on the Lima, thanks be to Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, what do you think? Some of the most useful uh, or uh, what? things uh magicians in in the oto or the golden dawn or or even in some of the other sort of related and similar traditions i think you know what i mean by that um could know or do or need to know or do or consider in their magical journeys when it comes to this new revolution of grimoire magic um, not a whole lot in my opinion um I, I think when it comes down to, and speaking strictly from OTO's perspective here, and, and of course my, my perspective, um, both as a priest and as a practicing grimoire magician, um, I tend to draw a pretty, a pretty strong line between uh, religious practice and sort of the internal alchemy of sorts and, and grimoire magic, specifically grimoire magic. Um, you know, the, what we find inside a lot of what I would call lodge magic, lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, star ruby, and all, all the rest, right? Liberesh, even though that's more of an adoration, um, that, that that stuff tends to be more of an internal focus, grounding yourself um, or, or expressing adoration. Um, and all of those things, I think, are important. But when it comes to, to grimoire magic, um, there's not a whole lot that crosses over there. It, it's interesting. W one of our uh, the findings that Andy Foster made in SSM manuscript um, was addressing the observation of magical timing. Uh, and I don't mean like astrological magical timing, I mean like observation of the moon phase of the day of the hour, those sort of things. But it, it speaks in there that... Um, uh, that necromancy or spirit conjuration is not an art of virtue like, like other arts, like astrology, for example, that it doesn't require virtue. It requires purification. Um, oh, interesting. Answers a lot of questions and a lot of things that have been brought up over the times about the necessity of purification or whether you need to be a priest or not be a priest or whether you need to be a good person at all. Um, to, to be successful in conjuration. And, um, and, and well, I think many of us kind of have concluded that no, you really don't need to be a virtuous person to do magic, though it may help. 
um, here's historical evidence that no, this is this is not a virtuous art. It's not an art of virtue. It's an art of purification. And as long as you can get through with the purification, you can successfully conjure the spirits. Um, and I found that personally reflected in in my stance over the last few years of grimoire magic that. Um, the religious side, and I'm deeply religious, um, doesn't cross over that much to me uh, into the grimoire world. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of my opinion on it. Anyway, whether that's well received by others or not, that that's where I kind of put everything at. They're they're very two different, very different things, and they're both very important. Um, you know, that's why I'm a, a practicing magician and a priest. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't find that they cross, cross over that often. Mm-hmm. So what is then the importance of this purification as a, a technical feature of magic, do you think? Because they uh, have significantly different lengths. In the Euratus, I believe it's 30 plus days. Um, yeah. In Solomonic, it's 14. In Enochian, there's actually no days of purification specified. There's just an oratio mea sapientia for wisdom that should be done mm -hmm. at morning and night, though it's not mandatory according to these grimoire uh, or his notes as such. Um, and then there's, you know, of course, you repeat the conjuration three times. But there's nothing else, right? Like I had a student once, he was like, oh, I did the D, the D working, you know, the Enochian last night and forgot to do an LVRP. I'm like, dude, don't worry about it. Neither did John yeah. D. Like, what <laughs> are you talking about? That's not part of what we're doing. We're doing D pure stuff. He's like, so I don't need to do an LBRP? I'm like, of course not. It's, it's not even part of the system. Now, if you're feeling uh, foggy or confused or unbalanced, LBRP is great for that. If you're feeling low in energy and similarly wanting a little buffer, then do an LRP. They're, they're microcosmic rituals designed to do exactly that. But uh, I think the spirits are, took off when he gave the final release. Like it's always felt that way to me. If you want to purify or light some incense after bonus, right? Yep. So to answer your question, um, I think the, the purpose of, of purification, uh, there is one thing necessary in, in conjuration. Uh, and that is an evocation. Um, and uh, SSM is a good example, though it's not been translated into English, uh, so access to it is fairly limited. Um, it, it breaks down the necessary steps. Uh, and there's, a, there's a, a statement made in there that translates roughly to, um, to observation uh, of uh, any addition to evocation is for the sake of evocation. Uh, in other words, the only thing you need to do is evoke, um, but you will find that things get better and easier if you start observing certain factors in, in connectivity or expansion of that evocation. And of those certain things can be the phase of the moon. You don't need to observe the phase of the moon to successfully conjure a spirit, but you might find that spirits come easier when certain conditions are met, um, that they're drawn, say, to pleasantry oh. of scent, um, that, uh, that they're repelled by certain scents. Um, and by observing that what spirits come to what scent or what spirits come uh, on certain days of the moon or waxing moon or waning moon, 
or um, if you're working with terrestrial spirits associated to planets, maybe if you observe the hour of the day or the hour, uh, the hour and day or something like that, or even the sign on the ascendant, any, any type of thing, whatever it is, um, is for the sake of enhancing that conjuration. And among those things also is purification. Um, there are people, we know people who can conjure without purification. I believe, uh, and Rufus Opus can, can slap me on the wrist here, but I believe he says he doesn't do purification when, when he does his stuff. Like we know that you can conjure spirits without purification. Um, I've even done it. We know that these rules can be broken, but, but it's not about how can we break the rules. It's about how can we get the spirits to come easier and better and do what we want and in with the less hassle the example given in ssm is going into battle like you know what if you've got a courageous heart and a, a heart of iron go into battle with just your fists and you know what you could probably beat your opponents if you really want to struggle that hard and fight that hard you could probably do it but if you go in with the right tools the right armor maybe the right weapon you'll have better time better luck you know yeah uh, <laughs> and that's that's in the SSM, the Summa Sacra Magica, is and yeah. that's a published grimoire, no. right? No, nope. it's unpublished grimoire. No, I've, I've uh, been yeah, reading a lot about it in in Skinner's Techniques of Solomonic Magic. It is, it, it's it's incredibly important. I can tell you that. Um, but uh, it's massive. It's it's like four hundred plus pages. Um, you know, and if you look at say the Illuminarium, the Illuminarium's but maybe 60 pages tops, you know? So, so the fact that you got 400 pages, um, multiple books, um, you know, you've got Libra Gratis in some, you've got elaboration. What makes it so important is it's historical context. Like it doesn't just tell you what to do. It tells you elements that are necessary and why they're necessary. It's literally a complete book of magic as the title implies. This is why Libra Gratis is so important. If you actually read the text in Libra Gratis, don't just read it for how to do magic read it, you're going to learn that, you know what, they're, they're saying that these, these spirits of the air, which are, which are demons are condemned by the church, but they have virtuous, um, that, that their virtue is redeemable. Um, you know, you talk about these demons that are beauteous, um, the fact that you can't, the idea that you can't successfully call something without actually knowing about it, which by the way, if you look at the conjurations of the day of the heptameron, uh, you know, so many people think that that's a conjuration of the archangel. Um, it, it's a constraining of the archangel. It's bossing the archangel around. If you look at that conjuration, you see, you know, it lists the names of God, which all conjurations typically do. They start off high with these names of God, and they list the target, oh, Aniel or whoever. But then it, they conjure it by inferior names. I conjure you by the planet mars or venus or whatever and and by the the sixth host or fifth host and and his overseer all of these things are beneath the archangel are you going to conjure something superior by all of its inferiors but what we see inside libri gratis which has the same concept is you have to know something to conjure it so you're not you're not conjuring the spirit by its inferiors. You're saying, these are the things that you are above. And by all of this, I conjure you. But if you look at it, it's a constrainment. You're, you're conjuring the archangel itself. And you're telling it to be present and to fulfill your desires. Um, 
So while it does conjure the archangels, it's not a, uh, it's not a uh, gentle, please come help me. Um, yeah. it's, it's a constrainment, you know, which we see in Liberatis. You constrain angels. You stand outside the circle. You call the angel into the circle and you conjure it and constrain it just like you do demons. Same, same concept, a little different method, but same concept. Um, you, you call and you constrain. Um, and Tamron's lineage goes back to Liberatis. You see these methods all the way back there. The yeah. historical concept that is presented is different. So it was interpreted differently. And like, I'm just going to, yeah, yeah, no, I just want to throw out there right now for the listeners because uh, my audience may not be so familiar with uh, you, but also some of the other cults podcasts out there. Um, rather than getting into you, uh, with you about the question of bossing around angels, constraining, commanding, all that stuff. I know there's a lot of people who are going to be like, wait a second, this is something you've actually addressed quite, quite well, in my opinion, on the Arabic High Magic podcast and as well on your Glitch Bottle and Inside the Magic Circle with Jason Newcomb. So for people listening, a lot of my approach to discussing with you, Adley, these things today is based on already having heard all of those things. I like to try and be constructive in my podcast sure. and not just, uh, you know, <laughs> go over stuff yeah, you people have already talked about. Yeah, yeah, no, not, I'm, I'm an academic man. That's not, that's not my, it's not my steez. You know, I like to just, you know, it's like, oh, you know, before you read this, I'm like, before you read this book, you should read this book, you know, um, which is a very academic approach. It's like taking as an assumption, these four sources, let's move on. And you're like, wait, I have to read those things now. It's like, yeah, you got to read those things yeah, first yeah. now. And professors love doing that to you. They give you a book that basically instantly you realize you, you have to read all this other stuff for the like, ha ha, we gotcha. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, I, I, I'm, I'm, I have quite a, a an understanding of, the way in which we interface with spirits in different magical systems and techniques. But what do you think is the difference for, for some people to understand between evoking an archangel as we do when we say, before me stands Raphael, and what's happening in, in, in magic in the grimoires? Yeah. Uh, it's not what's happening in the grimoires, it's what's happening in magic, just not you know, but different from the way it's that different. the spirits are summoned in the evoked in the LBRP or in say uh, some forms of demonolatry where you just mm -hmm. chant the name and visualize a sigil. What's, what's the difference? Um, I, I would say the biggest difference is the religious context of the period. You know, um, what, what we see in the medieval period was a lot harsher than what you see in um, in the Renaissance or post uh, post Reformation, it, it, once we get past the Reformation, um, we see a lot more gentle approach to working with angels. Um, you get back to Liberatus, and it, it's the same thing. You 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 have a, a giant circle. You pile it up um, to three feet, and and then you conjure the angel into the circle you're outside the circle so you conjure the angel into the circle for protection not only of yourself but um you know all, all the names of the circle uh, are there to, to help constrain as well but if you look at the conjuration and, and and the binding uh you are you are forcing the spirits into uh the the celestial spirits the angels into doing your will um 
in no uncertain terms uh, versus what you see. You know, we see in like the Goetia, the Lamegaton, you know, if we get into the third or fourth or fifth conjuration, particularly, I think it's the fifth, is it five, four? They add on an extra one past the Heptameron. The, the conjurations are all Heptameron conjurations, but then they throw in the, the actual uh, uh, smoking out of the spirit into the smoke box and all that stuff, which is not in the Heptameron. But I mean, the lingo in, in those is very harsh. You know, you debase the spirits and all this and that, but that's the kind of stuff that you did with the angels in the medieval period. You can see that stuff there, um, but you don't see any threats or um, or demands to angels in the Renaissance. I mean, maybe you do, none that I know of. It certainly wasn't popular based on the text that we have translated at this time. Um, it just became more gentle. And I think that's just from a theological standpoint of this is how we feel about celestial spirits in the modern era, in the Renaissance, in the, you know, in, in the medieval era or even into antiquity. Uh, hmm. I think it's just you know, cultural period based. Yeah, I mean, is, is, is it even worth asking the question of, of effectiveness versus say uh, value of approaches? Like if you were to compare the value of approaches between grimoires in some way? I think any good magician would. You know, um, it, it's like that. It, it's like the debate of, you know, what's better? Is it, is it, uh, what do they call it? Thwarting angels? Is it, do, you, do you use a thwarting angel or do you be nice to the spirit? You know, some may say, oh, the spirits hate it when you, you know, if you want to work with the spirit, you shouldn't be thwarting it and debasing it and all this and that. They'll work better if you cooperate or be kind and gentle. Um, or, or should you be straight up ruthless and and threaten to debase it and do all this and that you know and it's like there there's no period in time that i'm aware of that it is one or the other <laughs> it's always been both i mean you may not read it it may not be as obvious but you look at the heptameron which does get nasty in its conjurations um but it starts out kind it starts out very informal um, you ask nicely. There's no debasing, no threatening. Not until they don't come like twice do you start throwing out heavy threats. Like you, it starts out easy. And if, if they come easy, fantastic. You know what? Don't even do the other conjurations. Just welcome them and get started with your work. You know? Um, but, uh, but those subtleties get overlooked. And, and then you get these claims of, oh, you should threaten or you should be gentle or you know, it's one or the other, and it's not. It's not one or the other. It's, it's of course, be gentle and be nice and be kind, but you have to be able to pull out authority when it's warranted. Um, and you have to decide that too, you know? Like, Liberatis, when it starts talking about calling, you, you know, you recite this, uh, this big prayer and you call all these names and you do it up to seven times and then there's a little note from SSM in there, thanks to Peterson, that says, uh, you know, um, it said that you only do it seven, seven times because you'll be too disheartened to do it anymore. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you say this, and if they don't come, you, you know, you just call it quits and you try again the next day, uh, which by the way is a, a clue uh, that you disregard the planetary day and hour if you just do it the next day. You know, the hours will be different, the days will be different. Um, but anyway, I digress. Hot take, uh, it's, it's the master tip. <laughs> 
it, it, it's neither one or the other. Um, it, it's both. A good magician will explore the techniques. And I think most people will find that, you know, if you can get them to respond gently and kindly, use that approach. But, and, and it, even if you take the approach of, you know, I really want to be on good terms with the spirit. I don't want to get nasty. Maybe try calling it quits and maybe try another time and be gentle, but certainly don't be afraid to pull out the badge of authority if you need to, mm. you know, there's these quotes um, throughout time about the, the, the position of God and the angels and kind of the hierarchy where, where you have um, it's God over the angels, angels over man and demons and man over demons. Um, interestingly in SSM, it is angel or God over angels, angels over man and demons, man over demons, but the magician over angels and demons. <laughs> Wow. Wow. <laughs> now you emphasized uh, quite neatly and, and on uh, Inside the Magic Circle with our friend uh, Jason Newcomb and your fellow Thelemite OTO member, just uh, just pointing out that he's he's more on your team than mine. Uh-huh. You hear that, Jason? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, the fact that you stay, you don't go into an alter intentional, any kind of intentional altered state of consciousness at right. any time with your spirit conjurations and given that you don't uh your wife's another matter from my understanding and and how lucky mm -hmm. are you to have that kind of relationship hopefully yeah. uh hopefully rufus will have that too soon <laughs> congratulations you crazy kids um you know why not we're all we're all friends here um given that you don't go into these any kind of altered state intentionally um, Jason sort of pointed out that, well, you know, if you are experiencing this or that, the other thing, I'd define that as an altered state. And that's fine. That, you know, ad hoc define things that way. And that makes sense. I get where he's coming from, because this is a, a tricky area to discuss sometimes uh, amongst practitioners. How do you know if the spirit's there and if you should quit or if you should keep going, especially given the fact that you're not necessarily scrying or listening for a clear audience? or yeah. using clairsentience or clairvoyance or any of the clairs. Sure. <laughs> any of the clairs. Yeah. Yeah. And presumably um, you're not in County Claire. So what do you do? Um, I, I, I stay rational. I, I stay lucid. Um, I don't want to, you know, my, my big thing with magic and making magic work is reducing variables. Right. And it's a really big variable to start trancing out in the middle of a ritual. Uh, that's a big one. Um, yeah, I so love the idea that you like are more interested in seeing what you experience in your sober, analytical, self-questioning. Even you emphasize that consciousness during yeah, these so these conjurations. It, I love that. If I can see something, um, or observe something through the senses, uh, well, I am lucid and critically questioning and um, seeking validation that is uh, significantly more stable in my opinion than going into a trance and coming out going, was that real? Um, so, so my technique is very much on actually visually seeing, like actually seeing it, um, asking for things to be done and observing that those things are done um, in a lucid state. And, and there are times that I, I, that, yeah, I do question, am I really hearing this? Is, am I really seeing this? Um, 
you know, I, I want to be 100% in, in a critical zone when I'm doing this stuff. Um, I don't work with my wife all the time during my work, but when she can, um, it's, it's wonderful to have both because she goes into this whole other world um, and, and having, and being in a position where I don't need to really worry about seeing or anything like that is, is nice as well. But uh, for example, um, I was doing conjuration with Mars spirits. I think I mentioned this in one of the podcasts, Jason's, I think where uh, it just sounded like a rushing river was going through my basement. Um, you know, critical me goes, okay, well, my basement's flooded before. Um, so, but I mean, this was like, literally you're next to a, a river coursing through your, not a stream, a legit river <laughs> going through your basement. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, uh, I'm here in water. My basement's flooded before. Is this a flood? You know, and I'm, I'm peeking around and actually looking, I'm observing the sound is still coming. Um, you know, that's, that's something that I can measure. I'm in a lucid state. I'm questioning, I'm hearing this. I'm not accepting that I'm hearing this. Uh, I need proof that I'm, that this is not something else, you know, like, and this is all in the middle of, of the ritual. And that's a strong validation to me. Um, I, another example, um, I was working with, gosh, I don't recall. I'd have to look at my journals. I don't recall what kind of spirit it was, but um, I, I don't work in the dark very much, by the way, even if it's the middle of the night, if I'm working inside, lights are on. Um, so I, <laughs> wow. I, uh, yeah. You're heterodox uh, I, AF. <laughs> um, I see this uh, window kind of appear in, in front of me outside the circle. Um, and it, it's kind of like hazy and there's rain falling as if you're looking outside a window, you know, you don't see rain above the window and you don't see it below. Cause you're looking, you know, you just see it there and lightning is striking. Um, and, uh, and, uh, it's, it's all just through this window, you know, this thing is there, but I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, lights are on. Um, I'm wide awake here it is you know that's things that i'm i'm seeing a lucid state um so yeah i try to stay out of the trance i try to stay out of all of us I'm, I'm the good news is i'm not gifted at it <laughs> so it's not particularly a problem for me to stay grounded and lucid but that's that's my preferred method i i want the actual stuff to happen and i've learned because of that that there are certain techniques to use uh, which I, I call placating spirits. When you when you call a spirit um, and nothing happens, you know it's almost always the first conjuration that anyone ever seems to do. Nothing really seems to happen, you know. And, and so, next step, go to the next conjuration. Uh, I have learned to stop um, and pause. Say, you know, uh, I did the conjuration. Maybe do it again. Maybe two or three times. Uh, still nothing. Okay. Well, I tell you what. I go around and I, I bring the incense. I say, I'm burning this incense for you. You know, I prepared, I prepared nine days or whatever many days for you. I, I prepared the circle. I, and I even set out chairs outside of the circle. If I'm working with one particular spirit, I'll set out a chair and I'll, I'll, I'll dress it up all fancy and stuff and make it ornate. So I prepared the seat for you. Like I've done all this for you. I'm calling you, where are you? You know? And so kind of, it's not really antagonizing, but it's 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 a placation. I mean, to, to its core, that's what you're doing. You're you're trying to get the spirit to sort of take the bait, you know, and say, you know, I can feel like 
I feel cold, you know, but I don't see you or I feel hot or, you know, my hair's sticking up or whatever it is, you know, yeah, you know, no, I can, has changed, but I can't see you. Where are you? Can you here? Let me burn you more incense. Can you, can you show me where you are? You know, like those are what I really try to do. The cold and hot thing, of course, is a, is, is still a pretty good telltale, right? If you, if you're, you get suddenly very cold or suddenly warm or your yeah. skin prickles or like, like when I'm doing, uh, you know, the Enochian purist work I've been doing throughout the last, well, over a year now. Um, and, and we're doing it with others, um, it, whether in person or online, even we tend to like, there's a, almost a sudden shift by the time we finish the conjuration or the calls we've experimented with, with Leach's method and with Stenwick's method of, placing calls and conjuration in different ways because why not right let's you know let's experiment um and uh it's, you know some things all the one of the most interesting things is that some things just don't seem to matter and even when you question the spirits there it's like about the direction of the enochian letters i was like should they be right to left or, or does it matter if someone messed up and did right to left and the answer i got from was delightfully cheeky from karmar is like i can read it either way <laughs> and i was like well you know because because on stenwick's uh the the Nokians left to right and i reversed it some of my people didn't and i was like don't worry about it stenwick says it still works fine i'm sure he's right um you know and and but i was i was bawled over when i got that answer because that's like what an it's sort of such an independent answer right um it, yeah. it, 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 it and it really did feel like a distinct like yeah so when I when I first started um, working with the spirits of the air, um, the Heptameron spirits of the air, um, I made a mistake. It's I've noticed there's a difference in, in how spirits react and and different kinds of um, catalogs of spirits. Um, but I began by asking what I would consider now stupid questions, questions that were knowable or with a little more work I could figure out. And I wound up offending all of them. Um, and the interactions that I had for a long time were harsh. Um, it was serious work to get them to do anything, uh, to even to get them to comply or even be kind. It was, um, I, in summary, I learned uh, to only ask them for things that really, really, need to be asked uh, until I was able to establish a better relationship with them. I did, I did ask certain things that they were, that I got really snide comments on like, you know, um, certain, certain techniques for conjuration are like, well, I'm here, you know, like, okay, well, clearly the conjuration worked, you dumbass, because I'm talking to you right now. So what do you really need? You know, that sort of stuff. And it was, it was harsh for a long time. Uh, until I until I figured out a better way to to work with them, but yeah, interesting. Uh, it makes sense though, right? Like that they, yeah. you know, because it would almost be like like if you email if you're going to email Skinner or Peterson or or uh, our beloved Brian Ashton Chassan you know, the more challenging and intricate the question, the more likely you'll not only be to get a reply, but yeah. not frustrate them, right? Like to send them 
<laughs> to send them a question like, is it true that in modern magic, the North hexagram is, is incorrectly drawn? Yeah. I know they know, they, 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 well, some of them will know the answer, but don't ask them that. Don't ask yeah. them that. It's like asking a spirit for something published in a book. Don't, you know, don't ask a question that you could figure out the answer to yourself. And, and I have found that, like in my example, kind of how I got to know Alexander F and how he had information and a connection to an Eleutidarium, uh, I wasn't given a straight answer. Like, you know, here's, here's what we mean by correcting the table or this and that. It was, go find this guy, talk to this guy, because he'll be able to give you what you need. Um, you know, it, it was all very real world. You know, it, it wasn't like, Yes, I will give you this answer. It's like, mm, you go do the work. Here's what you need to do, you know? And there's been several occurrences like that where I've been sent off into the real world to sort of with my thumb up my ass wondering what the hell I'm doing uh, to finally just follow the damn instructions and get what I need, you know? <laughs> it's all, it reminds me actually of in confession when, when, when we would give... Um, like if someone confessed something that involved another person or hurting another person, part of the penance and penance is uh, the mechanism by which forgiveness occurs in the, in the, in that theology, right? No, no penance, no forgiveness, um, you know, theologically in, in that church organization, corporation, multinational cult. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sometimes we would, you know, we would be taught to instruct the person to like, you also have to go make right by this person. Like you, you can't just, this is not just between you and God. This is between right. you and God in, in, in the horizontal sense. Like you've hurt this person. <laughs> go apologize. Do you rob that person? Guess what? <laughs> you want yeah. to be forgiven. Did, you know, the reason we're trained to deal with, um, one of the reasons we get such uh, training in confessionals is due to hell's angels who frequently confess the murder they had to commit when they were young later in life. Uh, the majority of them, it seems, do go to priests to confess it at some point or another. So guess what the majority of murder confessions are that priests have to hear? They're hell's hmm. angels confessing their initiatory murder. And that's why, and seminaries have had to accommodate for that and be like, you need to be prepared for this because it's going to happen. And how do you, how do you prepare some, especially I was 21 when I started seminary, like, how do you prepare someone at that age to hear that and then yeah. to deal with it and to give them some sort of, you know, like, what are you to say to, to go do this thing in the world? It, it, that's what that reminds me of in the spirits is like saying, sending you off to do something that might seem so disconnected from anything occult or magical, but that's where Crowley might be slightly right with his definition of magic, eh? Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I may be the only Thelemite in the world that cringes at his definition of magic. Um, I, I, I get oh, what he's do saying. Do say more. Uh, I get. <laughs> Tell what this he's Golden saying. Dawn guy more about <laughs> cringing. <laughs> like, but that's not. You know that that definition may fit under the umbrella that is magic, but that in and of itself, I have strong disagreements of. Well, as someone who who got. Skinner's new Lieber Abba four books of uh, thing on the day it came out. I have much love and sympathy for Crowley as much as he is not my cup of tea, shot of whiskey, um, <laughs> pipe of peyote. Um, 
say more on that because I think it, it needs to be heard. Um, and you have a receptive audience is the point here. Sure. Uh, it, receptive or not, my, my opinions, you know, stand and are, are grounded. Um, and I'll argue them when necessary. Crowley, uh, I have great admiration for Crowley. You know, he, he was significant and the work that he did, I think is significant. I, I think particularly the work that he did with Thelema is much more significant than establishing OTO and AA and, and such. Um, particularly what he did with Lodge Magic, I not, not my cup of tea. You know, I, I spent a decade doing it. Uh, I found a better way, you know, it, that's just not for me. Um, but what he established with Thelema, um, whether you take a, a philosophical or an initiatory approach, whether you take a religious approach, I don't think it really matters, but that is where I think significantly the credit's due to that man. Um, so I have discrepancies with his consideration of magic, his instruction of magic, um, the, the role of, of kind of um, lodge magic within all of this system, not a big fan. Even, even mysticism in general, I have a big beef with. Um, but uh, Crowley himself, um, is fascinating, and there's so much involved with that, which is a primary reason that I'm involved with Thelema at all, uh, especially uh, I am wild about the fraternity in OTO in and of itself, at least in my area, you know, I, I know that mileage varies from person to person, and there's all kinds of horror stories and everything, but um, uh, yeah, I, I have great admiration for OTO, great admiration for Alistair Crowley, but I do have some beef with a lot of a lot of what is kind of core when it comes to most Thelemites and, and Crowley got some disagreements, but that doesn't, that doesn't really matter. Um, you know? <laughs> well, no. Yeah, of course. I mean, we develop and grow as, as magicians for sure. Um, is it that you think his definition of magic misleads us from perhaps seeing what it can really do in some ways? No, no, I, I think, you know, you look at the rise of mysticism, the rise of the Golden Dawn, AA, OTO, and all of that, you know, all kind of amongst sort of the rise of and development of psychology. You know, you, you deal with Freud, um, you deal with Jung, um, and theosophy and all of this stuff. It all kind of intertwines into this new uh, air quotes here, science that, of the time. And and his definition of magic, science of art, housing, change to occur in conformity with will, is a very concise way of explaining basically when you do something, something happens. And that can be applied to magic as, as you and I use the term like grimoire magic. You, it, it, as like a science, you do A and B and C will happen, like that sort of thing. Um, but it, it is a very limited scope. And so it does fit the bill of what I consider magic, but that definition is just a, a tiny bit of it, you know? And while it can be rooted in, in something like asking for a glass of water, get to a glass of water, you know, um, brushing your teeth gives you good oral hygiene, you know, like it can be applied granularly like that. And yeah. it's like, but I, that's not magic as, as I know magic, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, it seems sometimes 
there's a push to define magic, redefine magic as only those technologies which interact with, say, spiritual creatures, and that that's it. See, that to me is necromancy. You know, in, in today's term, you know, you say necromancy and people like, con you know, talking with dead people or rising the dead physically and things like that's not. And necromancy, it, look at the titles of the Eleuchidarium. The original title of the Eleuchidarium was Eleuchidarium Necromancy, the elucidation of necromancy. Yeah. Then we have a copy of that titled Necromancy, uh, titled Eleuchidarium Magicae, which is the elucidation of magic. And these terms of necromancy and magic were the same thing, but in, in the era of which this is contemporary of, magic was conjuring spirits. So when I say you, what you just mentioned is necromancy, uh, I, I mean it in the sense of what you mentioned is strictly conjuring spirits, but mm -hmm. magic, is, magic is much more than that. Uh, um, there's all kinds of variations of magic. I mean, the, the core ritual of the Catholic church is magic you know <laughs> it's just don't tell them that i i won't yeah but it's a just a different it's a different thing there's lots of different ways of of of, of evolving you know and um of, of causing change but uh, i do have some discrepancy some some issue with uh the limited scope that crowley embraced by that particular definition hmm Gosh, yeah, no, it is, it is, it is amazing his output and also what he did with his life. My theory is that his true will was to make sure that like magic didn't die out in the horrors of the 20th century. And so that all his true will was was just like make a scene, like make <laughs> such a brouhaha that in the future, you know, guys who bite the heads off of bats or doves might write a song after him you know and he succeeded yeah. in that just like yates uh you know his fellow golden dawn adept and obviously best friend in the world uh, um <laughs> wanted to uh bring a, a a cultural shift to ireland bring back the native culture and free ireland from british rule all of those things happened or started to happen in his lifetime he was one of the first senators and then fast forward you had in the 90s the celtic tiger economic boom enya and Celtic culture just exploded to be arguably the best, the most popular in the world. You know, I almost said best, but that was a, a Freudian slip. Um, I mean, obviously, I really that, obviously <laughs> it is the best, but I'm not going to say that out loud ever. Uh, no, but like, you know, Celtic culture is like, boom, pervasive, popular. And it, it certainly wasn't when he was in the Golden Dawn when he was growing up. It wasn't when my you know, grandfather was in Ireland uh, up till 1915. He got it just in time before the, you know, real ruckus occurred. And, and they, it was probably unimaginable for them. They are like, our language is going to die. Our culture is going to die. It's all over. And Crowley, in my opinion, really through his radical life, just did that for, for magicians. Cause it's what we all started off hearing. I mean, I got into magic because when I was 10, my mom, I, I had to live with my mom for a while in her, this o o OTO oasis run by an AA priestess. And one of her books, The Tree of Life by Regardi, with a bunch of OTO chief signatures in it and stuff, got mixed up in my Dungeons and Dragons book. And next thing you know, I turn yeah. 11, turn 12, I start to be able to read it better. I'm like, huh, you know, read the LBRP. I'm like, give this a try. I, 
I think with Crowley, um, his his uh, magnum opus, so to say, uh, was really the 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 importance of embracing, because I, I don't think at the time he really established it. I, I think it has been much more established well after his death. Um, but but the the importance of the individual's perspective and the individual's role in the world, you know, before the the role of the individual was, you know, what what church do you belong to? What what's your clan, so to say, right? And what, and, what and, cog and in that, the machinery are you? Right. But he is like, you are a cog and, and you can break this machine if that's what you want to do. Or you could go along and fulfill your role if that's your will. You know, this this idea of, of centralizing, um, you know, you are a person and you are a God. And, you know, um, all of this that, that you you have a thing to do in your life um, that you just naturally are inclined to do. And, and if you're really disciplined about it, you might understand what that is. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that has that idea of I am significant as an individual, like that idea, he was embracing back then, but not in a culture that allowed that to really flourish. But today, I mean, shit, that's everywhere today. You know, that's what about me? You know, and gosh, darn it, people like me. <laughs> Are you old and enough to remember not, that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not just about like, I want, I want, you know, you look at all these people who, who, who have these great ideas and they're able to build a whole social constructs and whole, uh, they're able to change the world based off of something that was central to them, but they were able to establish that among other people and actually work together as individuals, you know, who owe nothing to each other other than, um, other than a, a shared admirance of whatever the goal is to to just agree to work together and to accomplish things and that's where i think his his uh his his real importance was to me and i love seeing that reflected in in the egc for example um which is primarily why i chose to be a priest and actually pursue that route um yeah i'm happy yeah. to hear more about that um i was going to make some joke about how we how you know, becoming living gods, but it's probably important. <laughs> <laughs> you too can become a living god. Oh my god, let's not even get into that that yeah. that tragic tragic train That's, wreck. It's terrible. Oh my god. Oh my god. But um I I, I probably am uh I probably rub a lot of people wrong too with with my um particular stance on on EGC as well because I I don't hmm. think you can scrub Christianity from it um tell me all. more <laughs> um so my general perspective on it is if you actually look at uh theater royce who, who established oto and, and whatnot i believe it was a world conference uh, of masonries he was attempting to take the gnostic mass and make that kind of the the version uh the religion of, of freemasonry which yeah scoffed oh. at he left it off and whatnot. But if you look at how he defines it and what he calls it, um, and I can't remember the source for this. So um, coming, coming, noting that uh, he he called it um, neo Christianity. And if if you really look at the Gnostic Mass, yeah, there's all kinds of mysticism and symbolism involved in it, and there's all kinds of um, of uh, 
crazy lunatic references to Kabbalah and the idea of sex magic in union um, and dissolution and um, all of that good stuff. But but it, it's kind of it's kind of a dramatic walkthrough of the book of revelations. Um, there's a lot of revelations in it. Um, if ever you go to see a Gnostic mass, anybody. I did one. You look, read through revelations. <laughs> I know revelation. Sim- well, and look at the similarities between um, what's actually happening. Um, you have the central, you can't. Okay. I understand where people come from with the disdain of Christianity. You know, there's, there's people have issues, you know, and that's normal. That's normal. Especially if you're raised in Christianity and you just want to rebel against it. I get when you start looking at the mass and someone says, Oh, this is Christianity, which happens a lot. A lot of people, a lot of pagans that I've brought over to the Gnostic mass, for example, they're like, this is too Christian for me, you know? And, uh, and, and I get it. It is. I don't think you can totally swipe and erase the history of Christianity from the Gnostic mass and say, this is not Christian in, in some sense, right? It, it's obviously not Christian in the sense of, from the perspective of Christian to the Gnostic mass, but there's a history there that you can't, you can't erase. And regardless of how you feel about the history, you know, that's going to be your personal thing to deal with. It, it's there. Um, so I, I personally tend to embrace it, not, not defining myself as a Christian because I don't define myself as a Christian, but I, I do, um, I do embrace the history that was there that established the, the Gnostic mass that the EGC kind of mirrors and, and uh, does a sort of a neo presentation of Christianity without being Christianity. You, you can't, you can't erase that stuff and say that it's not there or that it never was. And there'll be a lot of people who disagree with that or say, oh, they, you know, I'll, I'll probably get, get on some people's shit list for taking that stance and whatnot. But, you know, it's there in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah, no, it would be, yeah, hard to. It does sort of flip Christianity on its head a bit. I mean, with the, the, the woman on the altar uh, yeah. in a state of undress and the, the Babylon imagery, like that's, when people when people are surprised that I'm not Thelemic, they often ask why, and I'm like, well, for me, like for you, Babylon is this good symbol. For me, that's the bad symbol, and it's not because Babylon is necessarily good or bad. It's because that which represents the good to you is Babylon. That which represents the bad to me is Babylon, yeah. and it doesn't structurally work to have it both ways in my being. And there's nothing I can really do about that. Thelema, at least from a Christian perspective, or or at least tying into its Christian roots, is, is, in my opinion, the evolution of Christianity, the continuation, the closing of the chapter and the opening of the next. Doesn't cut the head off of Christianity. It just evolves Christianity into something else, the next chapter, so to say. and, and, and I get it. People want to say, uh, I'm not Christian. I'm not getting involved with this. I don't think Thelema is Christian. I don't think the EGC is Christian. Like, no, it's not. But like, it, it, I mean, it came from somewhere. Look, look at the practice. Like, look at the EG- And that's not to also say, that's not to equivocate Thelema with the EGC. The EGC is a religious, a religious body, which 
incorporates the lima into what it does. The lima is in and of itself, it's totally different, its own thing. This is just a religious perspective of the lima. Yeah. yeah which is important. Yeah. And to you, it's the path to salvation. And for me, it's why you're getting left behind. <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Well, I, I, the main person I work with in town right now is a, an AA initiate. So we have fun. And, and when we don't, uh, you know, when, we're, when, we, when we take a break from sober tool building and ritual work and occasionally get together with some other OTO friends of his or, and jam and, and hang out, they, they definitely tear into the GD a lot, like nonstop, right? And then, and then I have to be like, hey, so you know this technique? And they'll be like, yeah, totally. I'm like, you know how we do it? They'll be like, no. And I'll show them and be like, what the fuck? They'll be like, uh, they'll be like, we don't do any of that. We've never heard of anything like that. I'm like, yeah, what do you do? They're like, nothing really, you know? <laughs> we just sort of imagine it. Like when talking about God forms, I showed them the technique we use for God. They're like, what? They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in it that you don't know because in changing in a dot what crowley did wasn't evolve the golden dawn in any way he made a whole new system i mean that's right. what happens like the greater ritual of the pentagram isn't a variation of the supreme ritual of the pentagram it's a different ritual right. and it clearly does a different thing um and I, that really does follow the same thinking behind i think we, that we see in grimoires so this is sort of a, a methodology that is um confirmed across systems with magicians right you change mm -hmm. a thing it's not necessarily that you've improved it even if the spirits told you you have you've created something new yeah and that's uh, lon lon's example of apple pie right i know he usually refers to it through examples of, of changing the mass but at, at some point he uses this example of uh, you have an apple pie but you change an ingredient and it's still an apple pie you know, at, at what point does it not become an apple? What what point is it not an apple pie? You know, like that sort of thing. That's, yeah, that's what you're getting at. That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow, it, we've almost been going two hours now, haven't we? Jeez. Yeah. Time's okay. flown. I don't know. I don't know when you have to go to bed. It's it's two hours later for you than it is for me, but. Um, don't sleep. <laughs> you don't sleep. All right, cool. Um, do you want to go a bit longer? I'll just take a quick bathroom break. Uh, yeah, that's fine. We can chill All for a right. second. Um, okay, okay. I'll just hit pause. Back from our commercial break, which has been brought to you and sponsored and fully funded by Mihai's blog. Mihai's blog, which you can find at <laughs> called Studies on Magic, uh, but it, it's at uh, studies-vartijaru.blogspot.com. He needs an alias. He's a URL alias. We should make him one. Just make him one that's like, you know, Romani, grumpy Romanian sorcerer.com. Yeah. <laughs> and just alias direct it to that site. Find his blog, read his stuff, uh, support him if you're inclined to do so. Uh, I butchered his name earlier. I want to correct it because I at least saw him that. Mihai Vartijaru. And that studies vartijaru.blogspot.com. It's a very cool name. Okay, let's continue. Yeah. Um, oh, you, you, I was gonna, you were, I was gonna say, like, um, 
do you want to say something to those who might be considering priesthood in the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica? Because I've never had anyone talk about that on this podcast. And it would be, I feel like it might be a good thing to hear from someone who has such a healthy perspective as you do. Sure. Um, like, it's not just some random thing that you did or have done or are doing. No, it's, I, it's fact, uh, I, very important to you. And when I do the degrees and, and opted, because you, you don't become a priest or a priestess or a deaconate without, without going through certain degrees of, of the OTO, like that's the requirement. Um, I wasn't planning to, to take that step, honestly. Um, so I, I did a lot of introspection on what, who I am and what I want out of things. Um, and I'll be honest, besides performing sanctioned rites of the EGC, there is literally nothing that I can do as a priest that I can't do as just a normal person. Um, so have a reason is my opinion, you know, search, search yourself. If you're at the point where, where you're moving through those degrees and, and the opportunity arises, uh, just have a reason, you know, don't do anything without a reason. The, the whole point of, of the lame line and moving through the degrees of OTO besides obviously the fraternal um, side of things is, is to, to learn who you are um, and what you are and what it is uh, within you that makes you want to be you um you know by the time you reach the point of of taking on ordination if if you're so inclined to do so you should be at a point where you have a, a good feeling about where you're going you may not know where you're going but you should have a good feeling on where you're going and and if Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If the EGC suits that, go do it. It's service, you know. Um, you're 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 serving your body, you're serving the public, you're serving yourself um, in that role. But literally, there is nothing beyond uh, recognition of the EGC to you as an ordained whatever role you are. But there's nothing else to it that that you can't do on your own. You can literally serve your brothers and serve the EGC and serve people, the public, as you. Um, 
so I, I don't really have any encouragement to recruit or get people to do it. Uh, you'll know, you'll know if you want to do it. Uh, you've been in the OTO at that point long enough to know if, if this is what you want to do or not. So um, either do it or don't. Uh, as long as you're acting um, in, in the best interest of you, you're going to have everybody's support in the OTO. Yeah, very cool. Thanks. Yeah, I know some of my my listeners will really appreciate hearing that. Um, and now a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. It's, yeah, you're you're, you're I, much I, more subtle than me, who's like proselytizing Episcopalianism on Rufus Opus's we, uh, wall, yeah, oh, Facebook wall. Did you see that? Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I was all, like, since you asked, let's, you know, because not many people uh, of my denomination, let's say, are very vocal in the occult scene. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really, you know, I don't care uh, about a lot that other people in various orders care about like uh, one of the worst places to be at is on an on a Thelema page on Facebook like I don't know if you've ever been on a <laughs> it is it's everybody trying to fit Thelema into their box and it's like that's not like you guys are kind of missing the point here <laughs> uh, it's not about fitting things into your box it's about seeing the bigger picture um, you know and it's everyone there's so much hate about OTO and Thelema. They're like, I hate the OTO. Have you seen their Thelema page? Like, man, I don't know about you, but if you actually know anyone who's been in the order for any period of time, they're not loud mouths. They're not people trying to fit Thelema into their personal box. They're not trying to see the world. You know, they're not trying to say, oh, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. They're, they have more important things to figure out. Like, how to drive their life in the direction that they feel it should go. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know if it's reflected in, in Golden Dawn either, but, but well, the, it, that, people you know. are first starting are, the people who are first starting are the really loud ones and they don't get it. And, and nothing's wrong with that. You're supposed to not get it. It's a starting point, you know? Yeah, yeah. But they're the loud ones, which unfortunately is the impression people get when they see loudness. They go, oh, this is the OTO. And, you know, yeah. observe the diet. That's the OTO. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's it's a little different in the Golden Dawn world. It's just the Golden Dawn's a different thing. I mean, it doesn't have the uh, whole religious element. It doesn't have a uh, figurehead like Crowley. Like the Golden Dawn was great, not really because of Mathers or even Westcott, but because of everyone who was in the Golden Dawn and and collaborated and worked really hard to make it what it was and you know um and that's yeah it's you know just a different animal we have our own delights like david griffin and voldemort and so there's plenty of brutal you know that's what we call my old godfather zinky poo um voldemort we call him voldemort because you know um uh, yeah there's lots of that stuff but again yeah it's 
it's not it's not sort of like in the music world right like in the early days you want to gig or jam with people who are boisterous and like partying and and doing crazy shit but like once you get really good at music and start getting more serious and getting better gigs you're like those people like miss shows because they're drunk or you know uh get you thrown out of venues and not paid because they broke a glass over some girl's boyfriend's head and mm-hmm. then but and you you know once they blacked out you know like i mean i've i didn't really work for those people because i was in the irish celtic music scene though there's plenty of that still there but but you start working with more professionals and more stable people who you know don't mind rehearsing twice or three times a week for right. three hours and and that's mm-hmm. what you want and it's the same thing in magic right the people look for the people really doing the work they might right. not be as vocal they might be uh you know not throwing around titles as much and 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 that's i think an important thing to remember yeah yeah do you work with many music uh, magicians low uh near you you're also a musician that's why i've slipped up but um yeah you, you have uh, local magicians you work with because you work with your wife which is uh, awesome she's a very good scryer you said and and uh um yeah, you rely on what spirits tell her more than what they tell you almost it sounds like uh yeah well i mean i mean i it's in my nature to always seek validation so whether it comes to me or it comes to her i'm i'm always looking for validation um you know the whole correct the table because by the corrections the spirits are constrained blah bit i mean that came from her but we found the validation as we followed the trail um but um yeah there there are other magicians i work with not so much regularly uh, I would say probably 75% of the time it's, it's just me. Um, uh, she'll accompany when she can and I'll gladly accept, uh, you know, she's got her own stuff that she does too. Um, so she, she stays busy. Um, but yeah, there are acquaintances that I, that will come along for certain workings. I, I'm picky about who and when, um, but yeah, there, I, I've done it with other people as well. So and do you think it's really true that that the biggest one of the biggest risks in doing evocations with other people is that they might not have followed the process of purification as closely as they should have, like you did? Well, I. <laughs> it's funny you say that. Um, is it? You know, I mentioned earlier the most important one of the most important things to me is reducing variables. Um, so why I'm picky on who works and when is that's one of them. Um, I can't control what other people do. Um, when I have worked with other individuals is when some of the more, um, physical stuff has happened, um, pinches, for example, inside the circle. Um, you know, I, I spoke to Peterson at length about one of these instances about, you know, uh, some, someone inside the circle physically getting pinched. Um, and, uh, and he was speaking about the purpose of the circle and, and, and also, uh, you know, the, the role of purification. Um, he suggested that perhaps when someone is not purified that the circle is less of a boundary, um, which I did some validation on. And I, you know, I, I haven't come to any real strong conclusions, but there may be something there. Um, but yeah, the, the more, more trespassing sort of stuff has been with other people. Uh, that stuff doesn't happen when it's just me. What do you mean by trespassing? 
like the circle isn't there trespassing like like it, it might as well have never been drawn um sort of stuff um but yeah I, i've learned that lesson and uh that doesn't happen so much anymore um but it you want to look back at the instances where things like that happen it's it's mostly when i'm working with other people so oh, i think there, there's something to the variable something in the whole world of introducing someone else whether it's they didn't follow the purification or whether it's they just are unexperienced or whether they have i i don't know what it is it's it's a variable it's unknown whatever that is when it came into the circle things happened that i didn't really care for <laughs> yeah I mean, it's so it's so interesting to hear about like Skinner, who has a separate circle where onlookers can come to see what he shows, and then sure. and then I think and 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 uh, but then there's people like um, John King and uh, Caesar Odie who only do these things. It seems alone. Yeah, I I am not against having people around. Um, but I am, I'm going to prioritize what I'm doing based on that. If I have really important work to do, I likely won't have anybody else around. Maybe my wife, um, you know, I value her and her gift, but certainly nobody else. If someone wants to see what it's all about, I'm all about showing them what, what it looks like, what this practice looks like. And I'll, I'll bring them into the circle and that's fine. Uh, I don't think it matters whether it's, you know, I practice in one and they practice and they stand in another. The use of multiple circles and rituals I mean, that's founded in history. So um, I don't think that's a problem at all. So a, yeah, yeah, there's an inner order teaching in the Golden Dawn um, regarding batching talismans and making multiple talismans at once and uh, giving them out or selling them. And their, their argument is that you're creating multiple rays of connection between you and all these items, these charged talismans or talismans and, and, and that that will, you know, is a two-way street. So you're opening yourself up to just dozens, if not hundreds of, you know, feedback channels by which you can be attacked, injured, or who knows what, I don't know. Um, it's, it's one of these sort of things that uh, me as a Golden Dawn adept has taken for granted for uh, what, 20 plus years. Um, and I think it's worth questioning because it might, I think it might be one of those things that may, even if it's true, that might not be the reason it's true. And I'm just curious if you have any experience of like, yeah, you, you have a wonderful magical shop online that, and I love the fact that you don't uh, produce like a permanent array of products. You just make, make whatever you're making for yourself and you make a bit more of it so other people can benefit. And Jason yeah. Newcomb was saying, oh, I, I just keep making everything I made. And you actually use Jason's heptameron circle. And you're the reason he started making magical circles, floor oh. circles. Isn't that the case? Or is it, are you the reason he started making I, a heptameron I, one? I, I, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I like his circle. Yeah. Um, circle's great. And um, Do you use the black one or the white one? The white one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I used to just, I used to have a hardwood floor where I could actually just take chalk and draw the circle. And I used to hate that because the amount of time that it took to write in all the names and do all this. But, but um, when I had my son, he took that room and I had to move to a carpeted floor. And um, 
wasn't sure what to do there. So I, I went and got, I actually got a couple circles from him to, time to try to test things out. And um, I went with the heptameron one, um, a big nine footer. And, um, and in the, it, you're supposed to write the names in on the circle and the names change. So every hour you have different names. Um, so I, I took a cue from Liber Uratis, which takes parchment and writes names on parchment and sets them outside the circle. So I literally write the names on parchment and then I place the piece of parchment in the ring of the circle. Um, and so that's, that's how I figured out how to deal with the names on carpet since they are dynamic and will change. Wow. But he makes circles um, and I'd recommend anyone who's looking for a circle. I've, I've not had any issues. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I talked really to him like... about another one for me. So we'll, we'll oh, see cool. if we go that Is there any reason why someone would pick the white heptameron circle over the black or the black over the white i, I think it's a it, it would primarily be uh, i think justification based on wear and dirt or you know how it looks after you trample on it for two hours or yeah so. <laughs> yeah see that's what i was thinking but then i was thinking you know maybe the white one is better for I don't know. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to background. We're big into our colors, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I've always wanted one. his uh, Enochian one and also his, uh, ch his checkered floor one. Cause having a checkered floor for me is just like, right. It's yeah. great. I just, it, there's something, you know, it, I, when you, when you've not only gone through those initiations, but performed them in all the different officer roles for so many years, it's just like, you know, throw that down there and I'm in, I'm in the mind state for magic, you know, there's nothing else I associate with that. And that's a very powerful tool. But um, I was fascinated. I couldn't believe that you actually uh, are working with a circle being such a purist yourself, you know, like, oh, surely he's not, he would never use something from a website, but no, um, you do, yeah. uh, you do. It's, you have to be, if you're practicing magic, you've got to be practical. Uh, like I said, you know, drawing out a circle on a hardwood floor was wonderful. Or, or even if you can, working outside and somehow getting it into the ground, if you can, is also wonderful. But I do magic. And if if I'm doing magic on a carpeted floor, well, I got to figure something out because I do magic, you know. You're not pouring uh, salt down on that. <laughs> <laughs> there's discussion about, um, you know, robes and, and names on robes and words on robes and and it's like, okay, these old grimoires are like, uh, yeah, write these names on parchment and attach it to your robe. And, and it's like, well, you know, I'm writing, I'm not writing 20 names on, you know, a bunch of different pieces of parchment and pinning it to my, like, my robe gets washed. I, I wear my robe all the time. Um, yeah, and I know parchment is very durable, right? You know, but it's, there has to be some degree of practicality. Um, so yeah, if you're gonna work magic, you better figure out how you're gonna do it. You know, it, it's always great to chat about this grimoire says that and this grimoire says that, but you know what? What happens when you try to practice it? Because half that shit isn't gonna work. Um, and you, and that's, you know, th that's one of the valuable things about the the Western magic Facebook group that I that I have is it it, it balances the academic side with the actual practical side, practicing side. It's one thing to read the heptameron and go, I know how to do the heptameron, and then actually do the heptameron. You're going to have questions that the text doesn't address. You know, you got to figure out how are you going to do this. Yeah.
do you uh do you see yourself putting out some sort of uh you know user's manual um i have no motivation currently to write a book um there may be a book in the future but i you know i i'm a practicing magician and my heart is in the practice um i have some classes that i teach and i i love teaching you know so yeah um I, I'll, I'll offer classes and teaching and face-to-face -face stuff. But just like you said, you know, my shop is, is about tools that I use uh, because it is, it's a reflection of my practice. You're not, my candles that I make that are based on the heptamron, guess what? They have Michael on Mercury, you know, they don't have Michael on the sun. They're, they're my practice, my tools that I put out there for, for people to use. Hey man, that's um, what my grade book says from the Golden Dawn. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm glad to hear this. This is uh, you know, music to my ears. But yeah, it's uh, maybe a book in the future. But I'm not motivated right now to to do anything like that. I, yeah, I want to stir waves. I I want to dig in the sources. I want to say, oh, we've been doing this wrong this whole time, or you know, that's the stuff that I want to do. <laughs> yeah, and you and you literally do have a course already. Uh, introduction to the hep timer on course which is i believe 299 yeah it's a it's a five-part class it's about 10 hours i think or 11 hours yeah, it, yeah. it walks you through um for someone who knows nothing uh equally with someone who knows how to do it into some really dark corners uh to, to really get granular in it and hopefully if you take all that info at the end you'll be able to to actually practice it yeah, no, I, I, I definitely hope to uh, we'll plan to check it out. I, I almost I almost did the intermediate one a couple of times in the last couple of days, knowing we were going <laughs> to talk because it's a, it's only $50 and I'm, I have some of the knowledge probably it assumes already. Um, but, that's, a, uh, that's fun to determine whether the big class is for you or not. You oh, know, really? You're gonna, yeah, you're going to get the, a the, So the intermediate yeah. sort of yeah. synopsis course for 50 is actually a good way to tell if you would like the, the full 299 course. If you're into what that class addresses, you're going to like the big class. Oh, so, okay, great. That's, that's fabulous. Fabulous. You've sold me. Yeah. Um, Cause that's great. Right. Uh, the first thing I'm, I'm working on right now is like the, my first sort of uh, besides the basic uh, Goetia classes and even Solomon classes we had as part of my Adeptus minor training, um, and, you know, after that, it's like, yeah, go play. Like, you know, now it's yeah. up to you. We're not going to like baby step you all the way through your career. It's in the Golden <laughs> Dawn often, especially for a really advanced adeptus magic. Like they just, you get shown it once. Like you get walked through. It's like, here's how it goes. And then if that's what you want to specialize in, fine. If otherwise, go do some tatwas or yoga right. or something. Um, so I'm working with the Mathers Circle, which is in Crowley's Goetia, Crowley Mathers Goetia with his the circle spiraling down and um you know you can either draw that or create it on a thing that would be a great floor circle for jason actually or you can just recite the names and they're just the the four world divine names from absolute right. to Isaiah from keter down to and i had always assumed it was uh down to malkut because i never bothered to actually read the hebrew Look. and so i read through the hebrew with frater back as the aa guy and I, he's like He's like, are you still reading that out loud? And I was reading it out loud. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to not just assume it. I'm going to read every word because my Hebrew is very good and 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 make sure. And I was like, oh, shit, it only goes to Yesod. Mm -hmm. The tale ends at Yesod. 
well that makes sense it actually reminded me of the how often i was instructed to do middle pillars just down to yasod if i was going to do scrying or path working or you know astral travel and i was like that's a really interesting lineup and then of course the tetragrammaton premiumaton and, and anaphaxaton right. so i'm working on that on the reverse side of my white triangle for the altar which would i'm sure would will get me canceled in the golden dawn world as soon as this episode airs oh i'm canceled i know what can i say i i, I travel a lot most of the time and and it's nice to have tools that i can take with me like i'm making yeah. a traditional purist enochian altar table right now which is two by two fit on canvas so i can roll it up i'm sorry yeah. you know like what else like you can't you just you, you know it's one of the great things about the heptameron and the eleuchidarium is such tools you you have the the heptameron calls it a sword but if you look at the eleuchidarium there's references where it, it calls it a sword or a dagger and the, the dagger is kind of lingo that's left over from earlier practices daggers were more common uh, so 100 uh, you have dagger referenced in in uh in replacement of sword so you could literally do a dagger uh and then you have a pentacle that you wear on your chest and your robe obviously and then uh the pentacles that you use for conjuring and that's all of your tools you know <laughs> that's it wow yeah well i like it i dig it yeah no i mean as soon as i saw uh the peterson announced the luchadarium necromantia i was like and saw that it's a different version of the heptameron or, or and mm-hmm. and i looked into it I was like oh okay you know because i've I'm going to, I've got the, the book of Oberon. I really am keen about, and I've been prepping for that, uh, prepping to work with that and incorporate some of that stuff. I love the fairies and, you know, who doesn't. Um, and, you know, as, as much as I want to experiment with the, the Gwedi, it's like, it just seems like the Hetamaron is just a, such a special thing. And I, I, uh, well, it's feel very drawn to it. I mean, people have this idea that it's angel magic and, uh, it's not. It is 100% terrestrial based. Um, your your targets are not the angels. Your your targets are the the spirits of the air, the sublunar spirits, um, and their ministers and countless spirits under them. That's who you're targeting. Um, and and the emphasis of sublunar um, aspects is all over the place. If you just look into the sources a bit more. Mm. On your on your shop, um, you also have actually for those listening, all the podcasts you've done, the three podcasts we mentioned uh, throughout this episode are there on your website. One easy place. Hopefully, there'll be a fourth one there soon. There will. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on it. Um, but okay, I had a, a, a fellow has kind of talked with me a bit. He's been buying a lot of the premium occult books, like you know, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm and um but hasn't started practicing anything and he was asking my advice which many people do and it went into this very well familiar ground at this point where it's like i just don't feel that there's any point doing it half-assed which i can relate to i can relate to that big time that's why i joined the golden dawn and stopped doing donald michael craig you know um it's like it felt half-assed and it was and it really was it really it was missing way too much and uh though great place to start it saved me from uh spending my life as a 
Cunninghamian Wiccan, which is fine. It would have been great, but I, I just needed more juice. Um, I had I had had some big karma to deal with down the road, I'm sure. But he cites people like Ash and Chassan, Caesar, Odie, and John King as as getting these radically full manifestations and apparitions. Um, now he did identify that it was more Odie and, and King that said that because instantly I was like, look, I've talked to Brian on the podcast, like, and and he's and he he summons spirits into crystals and uses a scryer. Like that's not right. a physical apparition that you could photograph. And so he he pivoted off him and and cited Odie. Uh, is it Julio Caesar Odie? Who yeah. I listened to his glitch bottle and I read his book. Um, which, you know, I, I know is shocking. I read a Goetia book. Well, it happens. Um, I might even read Rufus's at some point. As a wedding gift to him, I'll read his book. No. Oh, God, why did I say that? Jesus Christ. Sometimes I wish I did edit this podcast. Fuck. Okay. But he was, so this fellow was citing, and I really do want to help people when they come to me and say, look, I'm, I'm, I need something in my life like this. I want this in my life. And I'm like, okay, I want you to be fulfilled. So what, what advice can I give you? But king and odie's books state that they get full apparitions every single time without fail and he doesn't want to start doing magic if it's not going to achieve that same thing he said doesn't didn't seem to understand what could be possibly the point now of course ash and chasan and, and pretty much everyone else i've ever encountered um emphasize just getting on with it regardless of the degree of results what What's going on here? What's going on here? And, so and what's taps- up with this? What it, can I say something maybe heretical, just like a little off? Yeah. You know, you're a thalamite, and I'm a, I'm a, you know, past GD chief. Not everyone who writes these books is always going to be telling a hundred percent truth. Not always, inevitably, statistically. And it just seems that people declaring, okay, I'm just going to just go for it. I'm just going to, people declaring that they get full apparitions, full physical manifestations that you can see, touch, smell, and heal every single time without fail. But yet they never have anyone else there with them. And they, they for some reason, they can't. And they never film or record anything. It just seems a little absurd to me. Like if I knew I could get a full apparition, not, not a physical manifestation, an apparition, an audio audio communication like not clear audience physical audience (laughs) then i would film it or record it and the whole world overnight would change and i'd be super rich and famous but that doesn't matter because i would have literally changed the entire perspective of reality of the entire planet if i could verify that but if i could do it every time like that and it just seems like it's setting people up with false expectations to me that you know these people are going to be like Oh, you don't get I because I can't tell someone I get a physical apparition, let alone a physical manifestation every single time. And so all these new people buying all these very expensive books are writing off anyone who can't. Yet, while the people who claim that this is what happens to them every single time without fail offer no evidence. So let's I know start. this is this is no, I know no, what no. everything I said is just like super. It's a good I know question. what I just said. I know what I just did. I, I'll get it's, it is what new people wonder when they read this stuff. Um, so let's let's start first historical, because uh, there's there's always this big stink about physical manifestation, physical manifestation, and there's some subjectivity as to what that actually is. We'll, we'll talk about that, but let's let's look historical. 
um, Heptameron, since we've been chatting about it. In its conjurations, there are multiple places for the spirits to present themselves in different ways. Um, if you, Peterson does an excellent job pointing these things out in his side notes on his website on Esoteric Archives. If you look in there and you read in through his, the portion... Wait, sorry to stop you, but in I, yeah. I love Esther. In his side notes on Esoteric Archives? Yeah. Some people yeah. don't aren't as familiar with this stuff as where where do they find that? Right on the right side of the screen. Oh, you just call. mean literally the side notes? Yeah. Okay, the, sorry, sorry. The footnotes that he puts on the side. Uh, every time that you see a one or a little two or a little three in, in the Heptameron on Esoteric Archives, go read the side note. You're going to learn so much. <laughs> So if you go through these conjurations, um, it talks about different ways that they manifest. And when you first call them, um, it, it explains that they they generally appear in subtle forms. Um, Libri Gratis, for example, which is the one of the founders uh, of the lineage that is the Heptameron. It talks about spirits appearing uh, and, and knowing that they appear because the hair on your back will stand up or because you'll feel great heat. Like these are modes of recognition like and, and that's the first step and that's not a physical manifestation like your 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 hair standing up on on your arms or on your back like that's not a you're not looking at a full apparition here but these are subtleties of to where the spirits present themselves uh and you have to know how to recognize that because that's how you know that they're there at first where how are you going to get to the next step if you don't know where the first step is I, I had someone I was working with who was trying to work with a particular spirit. And um, when he did the conjuring, he immediately felt an overwhelming sense of failure. And, uh, and like, he, like, what's he doing this for? There's nothing here. There's nothing here, you know? And, and um, in our discussion a little bit more, I presented the opinion that what if that's how it manifests at first by instilling doubt? in yourself like that's maybe that's the first mode of recognition is that what are you doing nothing happened nothing's here nothing's answering you i feel overwhelmingly i feel like i'm i'm failing like you know and so he went back and and progressed further with it taking that as a sign and was able to actually make progress and he came back telling me that there were multiple ways that it presents itself and this is one of the less severe ones um, which was, you know, interesting. But anyway, these aren't physical manifestations. These are just initial subtleties. And I think most practical and practicing magicians will, will tell you that when the spirits first come, there are subtleties that they simply have learned to recognize. Now, I certainly have. Um, and if you keep reading in through the, the Heptameron, what happens next? If you're not satisfied with the way that they present themselves, you go to the next conjuration, which is more firm. And Heptameron goes on this little tangent saying, at this point, you'll be seeing a lion devouring a man and a little girl luring you outside the circle and all this weird, creepy shit. And that's not really the spirits manifesting in a physical form either. That's that's just a what it identifies as a chaotic form as it's uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's initial spirit spiritual form is this weird chaos shit you'll see um a, a thunderstorm in in front of you you know or clouds or you'll see rain falling you know little things like that and you don't um, mean astrally in your spirit vision imagination uh, just speaking historical here this okay. is what the 
driving. We'll we'll get to the that but they're, part. But they're probably intending. Eventually, it goes further and further and further till it takes the form of the spirit itself, and ultimately, this the form of which you call a peaceable form, which is normally a a, a form that you're not completely terrified by. It's not a lion devouring a man, you know. Um, <laughs> but but there's hey, each to their own. And <laughs> some if, might find it that more uh, peaceful than a little child saying, "Come play with me." <laughs> But but each of these, once you imagine that, once you establish a relationship uh, with with these spirits, uh, at what point do you think it's worth pushing them into more of a more of the physical manifestation as as we you know know? If we know that the spirit can come, and we know that we have a relationship, and that it's fulfilled things in the past, and that it will fulfill things in the future, is it worth threatening them and debasing them of their office? to get them to form, to come into a, a full physical manifestation. If we already know that they're going to do like, is that worth it? You know, going through all this bullshit about I'll debase you and never blah, 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 blah. Like, is that, you really need to do that to get the, the point is not physical manifestation. The point is getting the work accomplished. If, if you're conjuring a spirit to help your, you know, friend who's sick, get better i don't personally pardon my friends give a fuck about a spirit appearing in a full physical manifestation if i've worked with the spirit before as long as i know that it's there and that it it does what i ask it to do because we have a good relationship i'm not going to bother threatening it debasing it i you know i know what's going to happen we're going to just go that route you know it's not worth it I, i digress slightly here that's all right historically we do see different variations of how spirits appear and Liber Gratis, for one, uh, states pretty plainly that that spirits of the air, certain kinds of spirits, don't like to appear, and they're difficult to see. I mean, that's an acknowledgement right there, that spirits can be present without you seeing. Um, Alexander F. pointed this obvious one out in uh, Drawing Spirits into Crystals. At the very end, it talks about how you should always conjure with more than one person. And it explains right there at the end saying, because not everyone's going to see something. And the more people that you have there, the better you're going to see something. That right there is saying, not everyone's going to see what comes. You know, like there's plenty of evidence through all of these grimoires that the physical part isn't really that necessary. Um, It's possible. Yeah, I've seen it. And I, I see the more I work with the spirits, the more. I see things, you know, like in my cognitive, non-drug influenced, uh, lucid, testing, doubting mind, you know, I will see things and I will hear things. Um, Every time, no, Uh, especially when I started, I didn't, you know, I felt like I was just talking to the air when I started, but I decided after a couple of times of abandoning ship, I decided, well, what if they are there? And I just don't know. So I just continued. And sure enough, I got what I needed in my three days. Uh, And there's been plenty of times where in the beginning that happened. And I just was like, okay, well, from now on, if I don't know that they're there, I'm just going to pretend that they're there and just act like they're there and act like I know that they're there and and we'll just see what happens. And there's a good amount of success that, that came that way. But as you do it, you come more in tune with the spirits that you're working. 
um, and you learn to recognize them. And, and then it just becomes easier. That's just how it is. Uh, it's one reason why I would suggest not working with a whole slew of different spirits. Pick some spirits, you know? Um, what is it? Thurgood Goetia, Spirits of the Air. It talks about how all the spirits, there's like 365 or whatever of them, how they all do the same thing. You don't need to conjure all of them. Uh, look at the spirits of the air in Liber Uratis and Neptameron. They're the same spirits. Look at their, their definitions and what they do, especially Liber Uratis. Half of them do the same thing. You see that in the Heptarchia uh, sort of mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. It's not uncommon, especially when you get into the spirits of the air. The class of spirits of the air, you kind of see this universal, like, um, unified front. There's a million of them, but they all kind of can do the same thing. You look at Libra Gratis, it, it tries to break down. It says, uh, you know, the spirits and the angels, they have these, like, natural offices that they hold, but they can do literally anything. Yeah. I mean... I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's what it says. You know, they do this, this, and this, and this, unless they are told to do this, you know, they can do anything. And Libra, it's no mystery all of a sudden. You're working Libra Why are you calling all seven of the kings at once? Because they're a unified front. Yeah. You tell all of them to go off into their own world and do what you've asked them to do because they all can. Anyway, again, I'm going on a, a no, tangent here. It makes sense. I'm, uh, our first operation with Carmara and Hagenel, um, because we've been experimenting with over this year, um, sort of, because those are two interesting spirits slash, slash offices, slash Carmara might be um, Oriel, right? Mm -hmm. Might be just a version of Oriel or a lower role of that majestical yeah. archangel. Um, and you know, it says, it says all these things, they know the stone of the wise or the white worker or this, and that. So, you know, and, and, and the, the king knows things and the prince can do things. But when, off, when, when first conjuring them, and it was, it was a pretty good conjuration. It, by the third, fourth time we did it, it was much, you know, much stronger. One of the times was weaker, and I think that was because we were experimenting with a different methodology, blah, 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 blah. But when I asked for clarification, I says, it says, I, I said to them, it says you can do, you know this, and it says that you can do this. What can you actually do? What, what do you actually know? And Karmar said, I know everything. And Hagen was like, and I can do everything. Like, that was how it came across. I was like, okay, okay. Because they weren't speaking to me in Elizabethan English, right? Right. You know, they were speaking to me like that's just how, you know, yeah. And I was like, cool, cool. Okay, I get it. Yeah, no, I. Uh, to, to answer your question uh, with, with the advice to, to your friend who came to you. Yes, uh, please. Uh, this I, lovely fellow named Daniel who really deserves good advice because when you're buying all these excellent books and have the time yeah. to invest into it, but want to do it right and want to get the best possible results, I'm nothing but sympathetic to this lovely seeker's questions uh, so if it's to daniel or anyone else posing that same question my advice is this um don't worry about how the spirits appear to you and to what degree they appear to you your goal is not the manifestation of spirits your goal is the accomplishment of the task um it's great to read the books and to learn the methodology go if you've got the money and it's not going to hurt you to buy the books go buy the books go read the methodology learn the experiences 
but do not hold other people's, uh, you know, expectations. Do not hold other people's um, results as a baseline for your own. Do the method, do the work. And um, you always want to be prepared when you start and you never will be ever. You'll never be prepared to start. And even looking at historical, because I love history, <laughs> you, yeah. have, you have certain uh, regalia that's worn in the medieval era. And it's really fucking complicated, really complicated. And nobody is going to be able to get all the regalia that's necessary and lay it out. And guess what? You're not supposed to. Even in the work, you're supposed to slowly acquire them. The whole point of the regalia is to help reinforce where you might be faulty in your evocations and conjurations. It's to reinforce. You you know what? A white or a black robe, great. Add these names, great. Um, multicolored crown, great. Um, you know, it, it's to reinforce and you build to it. You don't just all of a sudden start with all this stuff that takes years and years and years to accomplish. One step at a time. That's my advice. <laughs> just just get out there and do it and learn from it. And uh, it will get easier every time you do it. Uh, yeah, that's uh, thanks for answering that 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 uh that uh question for our lovely unknown friend. I'm sure yeah. he uh, will appreciate it. I it's definitely my teaching approach. I mean, I I, I really uh when when I started teaching my people uh deep purism for lack of a better word there's a better word enochian magic or angelic magic is actually the better word i have this whole like rant where it's like enochian magic is actually golden dawn magic and d's is angelic but i only sure. whip that out when i really want to piss someone off yeah when's it work? <laughs> but you, thinking about it you know exactly what i mean right yeah, you I know exactly yeah and it, from a certain perspective totally true right yeah yeah, yeah. totally yeah but anyway um, I'll put my pedantic <laughs> annoying side aside. <laughs> it's always good to have party tricks up your sleeve when you're hanging out with a bunch of OTO and AA people who are all too willing to rag on your uh, tradition as a, yeah. as a, as a, the, the, just the seed for the true form, which was the Lima. Um, the, uh, what were we saying? <laughs> it's so late now, but. <laughs> okay. Um, no, seriously, what was I saying? Hmm. Oh, yeah, just I like when I was bringing it to them to show them how it works and how this is different from like tracing pentagrams in the air, right? It involves all this prayer and, 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 and piety and, and a very different approach. Um, I, I intentionally didn't tell them all the tools that they could make to make it easier. I intentionally operation by operation introduce new tools so they could see the difference they make so they could understand the difference yeah. it causes as a as a technological thing and i think that's just really valuable even if it means your early operations might be weaker or less reliable like i mean in the beginning when you've never done anything like this reliability is almost the last concern on your mind it's like yeah you want you, you got all these nerves and all this stuff i mean damn like just just yeah. get them through the process and and remember what, yeah remember what we said earlier about the only thing that's really necessary is evocation everything else is to strengthen that i to love make it that better. yeah what will what will actually conjure the spirit yeah yeah so you're not uh, conjuring nothing <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, and uh, have you dived? Have you dove much into uh, the PGM and stuff like that? Not my world. Yeah, uh, not I, mine I, either. I explored it, but uh, I I love the freedom that's in the medieval uh, magic, Salmonic magic. I there's too much freedom in the PGM. I need some structure. Uh, it, it's a very interesting piece of work, but uh, you know it, it's fairly subjective where one might call salmonic magic and its origin right um do you do you consider it in pgm where you see certain things that are still present in in salmonic magic of the elizabethan era for example or you know i don't know i i tend to i tend to define salmonic magic as as the the origin of it being where it took root in in the western world with some degree of unified standards um, and that's really, to me, kind of around the 12th, 1300s, 1200s, 1300s, right around there. And that's kind of, there are obviously magical practices that hold similarities that predate that. Um, but, but what was happening in Europe at that time, in that period, is definitely what shaped what we know as Salmonic magic. Mm. Um, another little question. Yeah. Um, yeah, as much as I'd love to get into Michael Psellus and Byzantine era, we'll have to do that another time. Plus, you've talked about that a lot, and, and every, that's a hot topic. Everyone can, other people can do uh, A question from the fellow Tanner, who I've been talking with, um, about a decharging talismans by accident. He was worried that he had decharged a talisman by doing a LBRP while, while wearing it. Okay. Um... So your question is about them losing their properties. Charge. And it actually sort of ties into a similar uh, question, which I don't think I actually allowed you to answer. My apologies, mea culpa, about the potential danger of, you know, the two-way street of creating and, and selling talismans to people and that. So both of those things are talismans. What makes them, what can decharge them? What's the dangers to the person selling or giving them to friends? Yeah. Um, this, okay. So first question about losing the charge or so to say. Um, one, it should be noted that I don't, I don't use talismans um, because I have access to the spirits. I just do the spirits. The spirits can do the same things the talismans can. Um, but I do make talismans because they're, well, for those who can't just conjure spirits, um, you know, talismans are an excellent way of doing that. So uh, first off, about losing charge, I can only speak towards what, what historical evidence we have. Um, there is in, I believe, the Veritable Key of Solomon, the collection work, I don't recall which book in that it was, it might have been the, the Key of Solomon, the uh, Rabbi Solomon. Um, it mentions about pentacles, becoming dirty and losing their their strength uh, and the importance of keeping them clean. Uh, based on that, that's claiming essentially that if you are not caring for the thing, um, that it can lose its charge. Uh, so uh, there is some degree of care that obviously should be taking place with something like a pentacle or any kind of talisman. Um, the whole idea of of consecration right its root comes from the, the word sacre uh, sacred which means separate 
uh, you keep it separate from all other things. That's how it retains its its power. Um, you you see desecration, right? What happens with desecration? It gets used for something that's not its purpose. Uh, then you need to reconsecrate because it's it's no longer separate from the other things, no longer its own. So I do think that there is some degree of um, potency which can be lost, um, but I'm really not in a position to say how legit that is in the real world. Uh, we see evidence of it in the grimoires, and that's about all I can say there. As for, um, oh, I, I would say though, to validate whether your pentacle has lost its magical properties is to just see if it works. I mean, if, if you have a pentacle for luck, uh, go roll some dice, you know, like go wear your pentacle and roll some dice and then put your pentacle somewhere else and roll some dice and see what happens, you know, like go, go validate it. Speaking um, of which I play Dungeons and Dragons. What's a good <laughs> pentacle for luck? <laughs> Jupiterian stuff has a lot of luck. Well, that's great because I'm I've got a bunch of tin I just got and I've been practicing with the Dremel. So yeah, yeah, yeah awesome. And, awesome. and there you go. I'll just uh I'll whip one up. <laughs> uh, as for selling pentacles, and really on the subject of of being a professional magician, um, you should know what you're doing. <laughs> you, you, I mean, that's kind of important. Um, there, there is. There's a trend of becoming, a, you know, just selling your stuff and becoming a, a you know, professional at, at that matter. Um, but you, it's more important that potential, that those who may be potential clients know how to look for um, the legit ones, because the legit ones are out there, you know. Um, there's some ethical debate about whether it's ethical to to be a, a professional magician or not um I, that's not really a debate I, I care too much for sure be a professional or don't you know like I, i'm a professional i do i do sell stuff i sell my services you know and i i have a particular skill um that a lot of people don't have and i acknowledge that a lot of people don't have uh, and it takes a lot of time and effort to do those things um yep. You know, I, I do have uh, uh, another source of income and I, I don't know how I do this sometimes. It's difficult to balance more than that. Um, so <laughs> so there, there is that. And, and just because you're a professional doesn't mean that you don't help people. Like you have friends and you, you want the world to change. Like you want different things to happen in your life and and others uh does that mean you're you know if you want your friend to 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 recover from an injury are you gonna go hey pay me x amount of money and and i will uh you know help heal you no you, you know you're a human a compassionate human who wants in your life you're gonna you're gonna build <laughs> a better place you know <laughs> i don't know i have a few friends who might i might be like yo man Give me 50 bucks and I'll fix this. <laughs> uh, there's a difference between being a professional. We just gotta we just gotta go to the pub for a bit. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> there's a difference between being a, being a professional and being a scam artist. Do you um, think? <laughs> yeah. Um, so and, and a professional can be really shady too. 
uh, is so it's important that that individuals recognize like does this person have the knowledge does this person have the experience uh, where's the evidence where's the reputation right those things like you gotta there's a lot of stuff out there you know <laughs> but uh, your question was more along the lines of selling talismans and sort of opening up a part of yourself yeah it, like, I the, the reason I asked the question earlier and I have no idea how we didn't finish it but uh, you know that's 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 what magic without fears is all about we have no fear of going off topic go wherever or, the states <laughs> or talking about you know adrenochrome <laughs> um <laughs> they're one of my fake sponsors use code word epstein at checkout <laughs> <laughs> um the t the yeah so that the 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 thing that that's probably affected more than just me among school and law magicians is the teaching around batching talismans and the danger of the you know possible energy feedback and damage it could do to you from the ray connected between you and it that's the teaching there's nothing more said about it than that in the flying rule. I believe it's a flying rule written by Westcott. Yeah, so it, first, let's say acknowledge first that there are several different ways of making talismans. Indeed. You have the, the, the method of the key, which is for the Kandari. You have later keys, which are astrological elections. You have some that are only astrological elections. Some actually conjure spirits. Some don't observe any timing, just utilize spirits. Some just sit on top of other pentacles. Uh, it, you know, there's a million different ways of, of creating pentacles. And how you create the pentacle is, I think, gonna determine what happens when you ship it off to whoever you made it for. Um, I could see in, in some aspects, if you are putting a part of yourself into it, um, that it, it could have a tie back to you, right? Um, personally for me i don't do that uh i i conjure spirits and i have the spirits empower the the pentacle for certain properties and that's that whoever has the pentacle has the thing you know <laughs> um it's not i you know i have a friend who makes incense who's a uh, puts a bit of himself into the incense and and that can be a, a i could see that being a problem if it you know it's like you look at uh, the old effigy dolls of of ancient times where where you or voodoo dolls even you know where you get something from someone else and all of a sudden you have a link to them to be able to do your mischief upon them mm. like I, I see that um i don't think in the grand world of salmonic magic that there's really anything that would link one back but again i think it just depends on how you're making it what are you doing? You know, are you are you doing some weird chaotic thing where you're jizzing on every pentacle and then handing it out to your friend because sex magic empowers everything? Like, yeah, that could probably link it back. That's probably a bad idea. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you jizz on everything. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that is very popular, it seems, these days. Um, I mean, we're not even joking, are we? No, we're not. No, no, that's uh, unfortunately. It seems like the most common <laughs> modus operandi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sex magic. It's yeah. sex magic. Whatever. It's it's yeah, it is it is what it is. More more power to you 
and year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, there's no denying its effectiveness. It's just a. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, um, so yeah, you have pentacles on your Adley's art. Yeah, Adley's Ad magical. Yeah. Adley, what's the website? It's Adley's Magic is the website. Adley's, Adley's Magic. It's a great site. I'm. I was. I was. I almost clicked on ordering your Dragon Blood ink, but then. Oh, yeah. Then I was like, wait, and I read what it was for. I'm like, maybe I should get one of the other ones because I'm, you know, it's tight times. Yeah. Um, yeah, not for writing. <laughs> yeah. And um, well, no, I was looking for sword blades, the blood, yeah, dragon's okay. blood for sword blades. Um, I won't grab a sword right now, but you get the idea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have a lot of fabulous things on your site. It's really cool. Um, I just want people to know that and know where they can find you and, and to check out the other podcasts you did because i intentionally didn't talk to you about a lot of things simply because you you've already talked about them on other podcasts and uh, i'm not one to invent the wheel even if my wheel is it, it, better it was nice to get into some off subjects you know and, and more focus on like personal practice um because that's important that's like important you know it is um, important as academic as i like to get into works and seek out validation in history like I said, I'm a practicing magician. I practice, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the other yeah. side. Yeah. No. And yeah, and that's why I knew we'd hit it off because of myself as well. Like a massive academic life, but also just as heavy practicing life. You know, um, like I was going through seminary while being imperator of a Golden Dawn temple. It was a weird fucking time. I can tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, up at six a.m. to go to uh mass in the morning before seven hours of classes and then back to the temple to rehearse initiations teachers classes or just clean a three thousand square foot space um and then do my reading and go to bed and yeah it's a lot i don't know what else uh is there any, was there anything we were going to talk about that we do you feel that we've missed no, I want to get into the mysticism thing with you sometime, but first I'll send you my book on mysticism and ethics. It's my major academic work. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, like, as in like got me into my PhD sort of shit. Um, yeah. Which I, which I accepted it for Exeter with Nicholas Goodrich Clark before, you know, and then he died. So that, that didn't work. Well. I should have gone with Yale, which was the first place that, but whatever. Hindsight, eh? Summarize. I'll summarize with this, and then maybe we can we can chat more about it. The the primary uh, issue that I have with mysticism, uh, defined defined primarily as sort of the the practice that can assist in accessing knowledge beyond the intellect. Um, you know, getting involved with uh, symbolism to reveal information so that you're not just you know it's not just you and and uh, your your intellect figuring shit out. Um, it, it, the, the primary thing that I struggle with is the reliance on the intellect to define those things. Mm. Um, you know, Kabbalah, right. I spent a decade learning Kabbalah and applying it and, and going the route of, of, of mysticism and, and taking <laughs> as, as much of my experience into the world as a communication between me and God and all this, you know, the drill, right. Uh, going down that mad road. Um, but in the end, uh, you know, I, I, a shift happened in me, particularly around the exploration of grimoire work, and and uh, I sort of abandoned Kabbalah and abandoned tarot and um, and a, a lot of that stuff. Kind of take a step back um, because I I just found that it 
it was just it was my intellect defining what these things mean um and that was what i wanted to that's kind of what i wanted to avoid um i i want the i, I wanted the communication between me and god without the 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 heavy intellect of what is where is this fall on the tree of life what can i learn about this where are my correspondence is how can i expand what just happened like i i wanted to avoid that stuff you know um but uh that being said i don't think there's anything wrong with people following that route you know the kabbalah i followed kabbalah for 10 years hardcore and it was there was great experiences in there and there's so much to learn through that you know so by no means am i discouraging tarot or kabbalah or knowing your correspondence is to help elaborate and explain your experiences in in the world um just not for it's not for me anymore. yeah <laughs> anymore and i would say that i would not be where i am without that you know that's an integral part of where i am now because it was my past you know so not to degrade or or speak down of any of that it's just uh, i'm somewhere else now for me yeah wonderful wonderful well, well, I hope you, I hope you do read my book on mysticism. I'll send it to you anyway. Um, I've, obviously, I I deal with I of course uh, apply a more general definition of mysticism, which is just theologically based as the uh, direct experience with God. Uh, okay. Yeah, because that's yeah that's the that's the working definition in mystical theology, which is is its own field. You can do masters and PhDs and mystical mm -hmm. theology people. It's it's not some random uh, field in which we just sort of make up whatever we think and stuff. Like people think this. I know this is my own pet peeve, right? Like it's like, dude, dude, this is a this is as as intricate historical and and technical as any other sort of feel discipline of human study and uh you know otherwise you know when people like meister eckhart came along they would they wouldn't have been so revolutionary See, meister eckhart was revolutionary because he sort of re-emphasized apophaticism in a way that just really shook up the whole world of uh um you know uh, uh relics and uh cataphatic images and needing all these medial symbols the pope all of that he was like mm, maybe not Maybe, uh, maybe you just sort of canonically let go and, and something will fill you up. Almost like if you purify the Alembic, then the divine light will just get sucked in. Or if you create the egregore in the below, that will attract the entity in the above. Right. Fulfill the vessel. Eucharist, divine. Devour the Eucharist until you are God the uh, Assyrian Eucharist for lack of a better word or that is the word is is still the cornerstone of my magical practice since five six and uh as a ecclesia Gnostica priest I'm sure it's a big deal for you too yeah um yeah and and actually that was something I, I wanted to touch on so this is a great place to to wrap up is is you practice as a big part of the heptameron is the the mass of the Holy Spirit yeah and uh there's a lot of things that are done by or needing to be done by a priest but you fulfill that role yourself mm -hmm. and yeah uh, in my personal practice um the portions of relying on a priest is fulfilled by myself um now there's a difference because i i am egc which is not roman catholic um no shit and it, it, <laughs> Thank it, does God. Have, it does not have um apostolic succession for example, 
right? Um, the Episcopates are not, I mean, some, some have, but it, it's not something that being ordained grants you in the church, right? So, um, so there, there's that. Um, but, but yeah, I, I do personally practice, I, I mean, outside of the Lima and EGC and doing Gnostic Mass and such, uh, personally, I do a lot of the Roman rites, um, like the, the Mass of the Holy Ghost, um, um, like the benediction of holy water and, and consecration of holy water and blessing candles. And there's a whole bunch of shit that, you know, it, is in the Roman rites. Uh, and, yeah. and it's a great method for me, particularly because, like I said, I, I do have an acknowledgement of, uh, from my perspective, Okay, the, the evolution of Christianity into what Thelema is uh, and not abandoning where it came from, that those rights do, those rights are valid, right? Uh, the, the difference is not in the right, it's in the understanding. It, it's, you know, where, where one might consider the, the chapter closing on Christianity and opening on, for example, Thelema, all from, from, a, from a, a, a Thelmic perspective, of course. Um, so those rights are valid. Um, so yeah, I, I do a lot of those rights myself. Um, but again, this is from a perspective of, of an ordained Thelomite in the Ecclesiastica Catholica. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there's, there's that. Mm. That addresses yeah. your question. Yeah, I don't even know if it was a question. I just wanted to talk to you about it because, you know, <laughs> just dig talking to other music, magicians. Um, there we go again. We'll write a single someday and we'll have uh, Marco Visconti do a solo and and uh, and uh, Nineveh Shadrach doing some beatboxing in Arabic. Yeah, <laughs> I wish there was I wish there was more musicians, magicians doing some really interesting music. Then again, maybe there isn't and I haven't heard about it. So people let me know. But um you know, I just wanted to talk about it. it's the, the the life of a priest is is so interrelated to the life of a magician in so many ways, and yet not most people don't realize that. You know, I mean, magic is still sort of verboten. You know, you can you can you can practice, you can be a professor, at, you can you can be teaching at a university and practice yoga and no one will blink twice. You say you're yeah. doing what we do and you, you well, yeah, you're probably done. Like game over for good. It's, it's not a joke. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. I mean, there's a reason I, I use Frater RC and not my real name. That's the only reason. And yeah. uh, it's a shame. It really is because, you know, all these kooky religions are fully accepted and uh, now, but yet us magicians still basically are like one step away from being weighed on a scale against a duck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought about that, you know, do I use my name when I do this or I just, you know, what? the hell with it. So yeah, my name is my name and it's out there. Anyone who decides to Google it will, will find me. <laughs> yeah, no. no, I still, I still plan on finishing my, I still plan on finishing my PhD. So I want to like give myself the best chance possible. It might not okay. work out, but. Hmm? Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I get. Yeah. Done. And not to mention working in the Anglican church. I mean, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think they'll accept, but tons of Golden Dawn adepts have been Anglican priests. I don't think they'll like, they won't be like, well, in that case, yeah, <laughs> here's a bishopric. We'll change our mind then. Good point. <laughs> Didn't think about that. <laughs> no, 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 man. Like even my spiritual director who was a bishop and my bishop who was a bishop, I just, I knew I couldn't mention any of this shit. Like my Hebrew Bible professor and Hebrew language and Aramaic language professor, he sort of, I think, figured out, which is why in my last semester, he tried to have me just thrown out, flat out thrown out. All the professors were like, you're insane. What are you talking about? This kid? No, not a chance. And he was like, he couldn't say why, but he felt it. He felt it, you know, yeah. and just went after me. Uh with a with the job I had, uh, the whole the whole team went out to one of those escape rooms, and uh, and and the theme of the it was the hardest escape room, and the theme of the escape room was like mad alchemists. Oh, awesome! So, oh so my we, god! And uh, you know you're supposed to find all these clues. There's all these imagery on the walls, and there's a book of correspondences that you're supposed to spend twenty minutes flipping through to find the right key, uh, learn the Hebrew, see what the Hebrew letters mean, and the number and I walked in there and I'm like, this is business. We were out in like 15 minutes <laughs> and everyone's like, how do you know this stuff? I'm, I'm, I'm like, well, I have an interest in medieval manuscript. <laughs> That's amazing. That day on that there was something odd about me. <laughs> That's so funny. So whoever designed that escape room was probably like, look, this, it was is, gonna legit, a, yeah. this is going to be a tough one. We're going to yeah. use symbols from alchemy. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. one will figure this out. I mean, who knows what the three principles of nature are? <laughs> and we'll be like sulfur, mercury, salt. And it's like, oh, yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah. They're like yeah. The, the planets and, and uh, whoever designed it either knew what they were doing or they understood how to navigate seven 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 or something like that right uh, but for someone like us you you were just like it. oh yeah this is so <laughs> <laughs> this is totally parochial that's amazing but yeah, oh, I, I get the idea of, oh, of to, to hide names and you know there's there's times like having my name out there but for the most part i just have to remind myself middle fingers right just i'll do me middle fingers yeah yeah man <laughs> I don't know. We, I, we almost, I think we've covered most things. This has been an amazing yeah, I, talk, man. This has been an amazing talk. I can't, yeah, I can't I'm, tell you. I can't tell you. Yeah. You'd come I back. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And um, I don't know how your viewers will feel about a, I don't know how long it's been, it's like hours. Uh, nine, what we said at 9 30. Three, three. I don't know how they'll feel about a three-hour podcast, but here it is. <laughs> oh, you don't know my viewers, <laughs> brother. I have there's there's interviews on my podcast with people that are over five hours. Dang. Okay. Yeah, but um, interestingly, the most there's you know what's weird is there's a strange jump. The episodes that breach three hours get more lessons the than the episodes that don't breach three hours. Hmm which I find is it's almost like someone sees that less than three hour mark. And I guess like, and I've noticed this myself listening to some podcasts, like ones I really love. And if I notice they're shorter than I expected, I'll be like, oh, it probably doesn't get into much 
deep stuff. Oh, well, I'll skip that mm. one. Whereas if I see it's like really long, I'll be like, there's no way two people could talk that amount of time without saying some like either fucking interesting shit or fucking hilarious shit. <laughs> Makes Hopefully sense. both. So, you know, I don't know. And, you know, maybe none of this is true. Maybe it's just like all three of my interviews with Rufus and I'm just making all this up. So I could be an illusion and you're just in a DMT trip. Hard to do that without doing DMT. Or is it? <laughs> or <laughs> you should try some DMT sometime. It is a great note to end on. Where do you live? I'll I'll drive down. Oh, that's right. I'm not even allowed to leave my province legally, let alone go into another country. Yeah. Strange days, brother. Strange days. Yes. Um, do you have any plans to do magic to improve the state of the world? Uh, always. Um, though. Oh, that's interesting. It's little little steps at a time. Uh, I, I don't go the route of you know trying to heal the whole world at once. You know, um, start in my neck of the woods, the people that I know, the community that I love, um, and and moving forward from there. It's one of those things of being a professional magician too. Is you people do want to help and um and you you don't know who needs it until they come to you you know um so while you have your friends and your neighborhood and those you love and the communities you admire um there's more people out there uh one of my one of my favorites was um you know a woman in a woman in texas who had uh lupus and was in a flare and she could hardly move um and her employer was she, she was migrating from short-term disability to long-term disability and her employer was holding out on her and not going to pay her. Um, just a whole fucked up situation, you know? Um, and, and financial crisis is with that too. Um, you know, there's people out there who you don't know who are, you know, I, you know, knowing of autoimmune diseases and how they can affect people. Like I want to help people like that, you know, but I would never, have known she's in texas on the whole total you know 12 hours away from me god 18 hours away from me i don't know i don't even know how far away it is from Omaha. long ways anyway there's people all over the world who need help who who are looking for help um and you know you you have ethical calls to make with all of those kind of decisions and what you're going to do but it's important that you remain human you know you be a human and be a compassionate person and and do what's right in every different situation um but people need help so yeah, I always try to improve the world. Amen. And uh, what a great, great note to end on is, uh, you know, that's the call, like, you know, help the world. And I, for someone who's last, I just want to say though, for someone who's, who's dis, dis abandoned the tarot a little bit, you have some of the most beautiful magician card I might've ever seen in my life up on the wall behind you. And I know oh, yeah, we've yeah. agreed not to share this video recording, just the audio, but I got to say, I have to comment on it, even though it's going to annoy people because they can't see it. Where is that from? Who made that? Uh, my, my wife is aesthetically inclined and gifted, and I am not. Um, these came from an artist on Etsy. Um, I'm pretty sure if, if you, oh God, I hate to say, go look up the word tarot on Etsy, because God knows what those results, <laughs> how many you'll get but maybe tarot artwork <laughs> and you'll find it on Etsy. Amazing. These are prints. So they're, they're, yeah. 
No, I, I can't card, believe how much I like that magician card. Yeah, she picked out the frame on all of that stuff. So I mean, that that didn't come with it. It was just the print. But well, she has wonderful taste in art and husbands. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> brother it's 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 been just a treat it's been a slice and uh we must we must do a continuation at some point for it um it was, once it was, once uh, once the peterson books out and next year and all that and uh yeah like i i'm sure you're i'm sure the facebook group will go wild december 2nd after yeah, everyone's absolutely. got that i'm sure everyone on that books uh and i noticed the pre-order price has been climbing a little bit it seems oh, I, at least, I, I at least in canada yeah, Peterson was like, okay, it's on pre-order. I'm like, click. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it was 69 when I first saw it on, and now I think it's like in the high 70s in Canada, yeah. that is, of course. So, you know, don't take my word for it. We're, we're strange up here. We're almost like good. another country. <laughs> almost. <laughs> It'll be good. But there's, there's a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm diving in with other uh, researchers and scholars. I'm on... Um, on older text and uh learning so much more too so there'll always be more to talk about absolutely what a pleasure man thank you so much this has just been a, a fucking awesome yeah thanks yeah. for having me I, I had a good time awesome. all right thanks, well it, it's morning time so time for me to, to try to get some rest <laughs> yeah this is the beginning of the planetary hour of the next day for you or something uh nope that would have been a sundown sundown it's, of course going on 1 a.m now I'm sure so many people are curious about that. They will have to go listen to your three other episodes found yeah, on your website. Read Peterson's book too when it comes out. Yeah, Peterson's Elucidation of Necromancy and yeah. Tamaron. Okay, folks, go find it. Peace. Yep, have a good night. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk